podcast has bad words. <laughs> You're listening to The Minimalist. Today we're talking about the void. Mm. We're here with Jeanette McCurdy. Yeah. And I wanted to start with, we do this little segment called More About Less, where we, we read something as a jump off point. And you had a conversation with us, Jeanette, uh, yeah. a few months ago on your podcast, Empty Inside. And we were talking about success. And I was trying to convey to you how success doesn't exist. And it's one of these new insights that I've had over the last six months or so. And because I think before my idea of success was one thing, and I was like, well, that's wrong. So clearly what is right? What is, what is success? If success wasn't a million dollars, which I had, hadn't made, but I was on my way to it, right? Or if it, was, if it wasn't the Lexuses or the house in the suburbs or you know, the, the full basement or the trophies, the President's Club, the Brooks Brothers suits, the walk-in closets, all these things I guess weren't success. But the thing is, they actually were success. Mm. And that was the problem. I was like, well, these aren't, I didn't feel successful. Oh, I didn't feel successful, but I was successful. What I really meant is I didn't feel contented. I didn't feel at peace. I didn't mm. feel happy. I didn't feel tranquil. Uh, the Greeks would have called it eudaimonia. And, and so this idea of success has peaked its head into conversations over the last six months or so. And I wrote this essay uh, gave you the hat tip at the end of it because I think it really, it, it really sort of summarized my current thoughts on success. This is called Success Does Not Exist. We'll put a link to this in the show notes as well, and then we can talk about it. What do you think of when you think of success? A trophy, award, or achievement? A specific number of followers? A certain amount of money? Well, there's nothing, quote, wrong with these things. A dozen championships won't increase your tranquility. A thousand admirers won't bring you peace. A million dollars won't make you happy. I'm going to pause on that for a moment. The most stress that I felt professionally in the last five years was in January when our new film came out. Mm. And it's, it did the opposite of bring me tranquility, right? Because we were very happy with the film. The yeah. creation of it was wonderful. I really enjoyed doing it. I, I felt wonderful about it. And of course, all the positive feedback came rolling. It was overwhelming. In fact, we got way more positive feedback than I anticipated. Yeah. Yeah. But then of course, what do you notice? You always notice the little cavils or the, the little bits of criticism or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, the, ironically, the minimalist new documentary comes up empty or you know, something. Turns and, and out less is less. <laughs> I was listening to uh, NPR and it was it was movies of the week. You know how they do movies of the week on uh, yeah. WKCC, I think it is. Anyway, it's a local NPR station here in LA. And I love that that little segment they do. It always like informs me of new movies. And so my wife and I are driving home from a friend's house. It's like 1030 at night. This is on Christmas Day. 1030 at night. And I hear movies of the week come on, and they're like, and next we'll be exploring the new documentary from The Minimalist, Less Is Now. I'm like, oh, my God, the review in our documentary. And then they just proceeded to shred <laughs> our documentary. Really? Yeah. yeah. And it's it was fun. I mean, you know, at this point in life, uh, when someone criticizes us like that, I think that literally the last line was like, well, so I guess you could really sum this up by saying this movie is – uh, it turns out less is actually less with this documentary. <laughs> I never like the sassy closers. No, They're yeah. always like so sassy. Yeah, uh-huh. and Tone it's, it down, dude. <laughs> yeah, and it's like um, I, I know exactly what you're saying. There's like a, a snub uh, or like an airedness or like they're putting themselves on a pedestal with like these pithy little lines. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I totally agree. But, you know, when I, when I hear criticism like that, 
here's what I think. Like, is this for me? Is there something here that I can actually learn from? Mm. And when I looked at their review, that's a great approach. It was very uh, clear that that criticism was not for Josh and I. Mm. It was for them, mm. right. mainly because what they decided to pick apart had nothing to do with like the message that we were trying to convey. Yep. And they were clearly um, judging the documentary based on their own lives. So the criticism is, it was not for me. So that's first and foremost, I can look at it and say, is it for me or not? And then the second thing is, you know, I can look in the mirror and ask myself like, okay, have you done the absolute best job you can do with this? So there are things about the documentary um, that I know could have been better or maybe it could have been different, but there's a certain point when you have a creation like that, you have to let go and say, you know what, this is the best that we can do given the resources we have. And when I can answer yes to that question, mm-hmm. it's okay if someone criticizes it. Like, I mean, like, there's like, um, and not, no one ever had this critique, but there's a point in the documentary where you can hear like a little squeaky wheel from the camera thing. And it's something that like, I understand that like, hey, there's a little squeaky wheel noise here at mm-hmm. this particular segment. And if someone it's called- literally a fraction of a second. Right, and literally if someone, like if that was a critique, like, oh, everything was great except for that squeaky wheel, I could look at that and be like, yeah, I kind of agree with them. Yeah, I <laughs> wish we could have got that out of there, but you know what? We weren't able to get that squeaky wheel noise out of there. Yeah, it would have cost us $50,000 <laughs> to get rid of this <laughs> right. one exactly. split second. Exactly. So, so um, <laughs> you know, it's what's fascinating. We write about this in Love People Use Things, uh, delineating criticism from feedback and, and mm-hmm. seeking out feedback. Like, I don't actually interact directly with our audience anymore, although I do interact with our audience directly every day. Let me uh, explain what I mean by that. So I have several filters now because I, I can't just, and uh, Jeanette is, you know, be 10X, 20X, 100X of this. You can't simply be your own customer service department on Twitter, right? Mm-hmm. You could, but you'd spend all day explaining yep. yourself. Yeah. Yeah. It was Tom Brady who said, as soon as you explain, explain yourself, you've lost. Hmm. And and I think about that with any of this criticism versus feedback. Criticism presents a problem. Feedback presents a problem with what to do about the problem in a way. Yeah. Now, feedback is something that I seek out it, from trusted people, not from random people who I, you know, uh, turn on the radio. That's not feedback. It's no. not for me, as Ryan said. But if, even if there was something there on the radio for, uh, for me to look at differently, like that would be okay. Right. But yeah. Well, it, maybe, but what would you do with it? Well, if anything, it would be something where I'd be like, you know what? If we do another documentary, maybe we should consider this point of view. Because I have before had people email me. Um, but but again, yeah. it's with a solution. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's like here's the problem, and maybe you want to take this approach. I'm less amenable to that now, and let me explain why. I, I agree with you, especially fundamentally. When you first start creating, mm. it's great to solicit feedback from everyone. But we've. No committee has ever made great art either. Right. Yeah. You, there isn't like, oh, look at that painting that those 12 people did. Yeah. It never happens, right? Right. <laughs> uh, in fact, even when something looks like a, a team made it, a movie is a great example of this. No, it's a bunch of excellent individual contributors who came together and did their role very well. The director had an excellent performance. The actor had an excellent performance. The sound person had an excellent performance. All of these things came together, so it looks like a team. But really, if one one of those people screws it up, it can screw the whole the whole film up. The mm-hmm. whole endeavor can get can get destroyed. Let me return to the text here. 
Craving an outcome anchors you to a future that does not exist and drags you away from the peace of the present moment. So that's why when I talk about a dozen championships won't increase your tranquility, releasing a film that millions of people see mm -hmm. and is widely accepted as the best thing that we've done still decreases the tranquility if, if I have an expectation there, right? And so the expectation is the, the killer of joy. Yeah. If you always need more, more cash, more clout, more commendations, then you'll never have enough and you'll continue to yearn. Yearning leads only to misery. And misery isn't success, it's failure. Mm. What about winning? Isn't that the definition of success? To take home a trophy is to take home a relic that points to the past, another attachment that rests you from the present moment. Winning isn't innately good or bad, but the compulsion to win, to compete, to be number one, is a prison. Mm. Imagine you're trapped in a spacious jail cell, surrounded by trophies. Does that sound like success? If you win the game but lose equanimity, what have you won? Nothing. You've lost everything. But what about raising well-rounded children, or establishing better habits, or donating to charity? Surely these are endeavors of a, of a successful person. You're free to do any of these things, to create and consume and contribute with abandon. But as soon as you attach happiness to an outcome, you place yourself back behind bars because you're living in the future again. Mm. Running after a result isn't success, it's chasing. Chasing the past or the future. Success is always bound to chasing. Chasing is attachment. Attachment is suffering. Suffering is failure. Do the math. If A equals B and B equals C, then success equals failure. This may be hard for you to grasp because you've been sold a meme your entire life. You've been told that success equals happiness. That you're just one accomplishment away from happy. But you weren't given the truth. Happiness is your default state. It appears when you stop chasing. Happiness needn't be pursued to be reached. The pursuit of happiness is just another form of chasing. It is only when you drop the pursuit that you realize happiness. Influence, wealth, and status are all hapless hunts. Getting more does not make you successful. Striving for more makes you excessful. Excess is accompanied by restlessness, pain, and misery. So travel the path towards success if you want. Simply know that that path diverges from peace. Peace is found only in the present through awareness and letting go. That's not to say that you should let go or that you should be happy or that you should not fail. There is no should. But if you want peace, it is not found on the horizon or in the rear view mirror. So let's talk about this. Hmm. I know this is hard to grasp because it's, I'm, I've, I wrote the damn thing and it's hard for me to grasp. And it's because we've been programmed. And I, whether it's our society that's programmed us or it's some other thing that has programmed us, we are, human beings are programmable. Mm -hmm. And we've been programmed to believe that success is the same thing as happiness. It's funny because even, because I've read that essay, 
uh, I don't. This is probably the sixth or eighth time I've I've heard that essay or read that essay, mm-hmm. and it's funny because I still go back to redefining success. Yes, and but I think when you redefine it, it loses that societal meaning of having all these accomplishments. Right, whatever those look like, you know. We can redefine the color blue. Mm-hmm. Like I could say, well, you know, that whiteboard right there is actually a blue board. Well, yeah, but the difference is a successful actually has a definition. Where blue, there is no definition for blue. Well, okay, but let's let's just say that we can we can say that success is one thing, right? Mm-hmm. It is it is now in our society is thought of it's always quantifiable achievements. Yeah, just w- yeah. with achievements. Yeah, and, and so I can look at. Well, our Instagram account is successful because we have you know, half a million followers, but then I'm unsuccessful if I compare that to Jeanette's success there, right? <laughs> oh, wait. Do, do you right. feel successful there? Because, and here's, I just lost all my happiness. Right. <laughs> and, and then, like, but when it becomes tethered to that, right? Like, how silly is it? Like, I could take a selfie, a shitty selfie right now, post it, and thousands of people would like it. Mm-hmm. But that's not happiness either that's ephemera it's almost like um and this is the first time i've had this feeling about success uh after reading or listening to that essay but success is kind of like this it's like a butterfly in the sense that once you pin it down and try to like really examine it it loses all of its power or all of its meaning all of its beauty yes so you know if i am a successful person it's not because i was striving to be successful right it's be, if anything, it was because success wasn't the goal, right? Yeah, so yeah. This is that's exactly what my partner's sort of approach has been to well, well what he tries to encourage me to do uh, in terms of my approach to my career, which I'm now trying to pursue writing and ideally directing at some point. Um, but writing was the thing that when I when I quit acting, I was like, oh, I think I really want to write and, and ideally direct. I think I have a voice. I think I have things to say. I care about the things that I want to talk about. And I was comparing. I would say, well. Until I, once I've sold a movie, then I'll be successful. Mm-hmm. Once I've bl- done this thing blank, then I'll be successful. So then, and he was always telling me, well, you know, it shouldn't be about you're chasing the wrong thing. You should never chase success. This is, it's a, you're going to make yourself crazy. You're going to be devastated all the time because you're going to always find a new thing that you're going to want to chase. So I shared with him your essay, which he completely, of course, agreed with. And, uh, and I got to thinking, there was something in it that, that got me thinking in a different way. Well, maybe I am viewing this wrong because it's it's a thing that i know i shouldn't or there i am shooting but you know it's a thing that i know is not a service to my mental health or my uh happiness Mm -hmm. to just constantly be saying well when well when will i get this or when will this thing happen but it's so deep rooted in me that it feels like almost impossible to overcome then i read the essay really just like the whole night was thinking about it I'm not kidding you. Two days later, I found out that I sold a book, which I haven't talked about. I'm super excited about. But getting that sort of external validation made me feel amazing. I felt like, wow, okay, I've done it. I've like done a thing that I've wanted to do for Mm. five years. Uh This is incredible. And that's the question I want to ask you is because that has given me a great sense of comfort. I feel less urgency toward my other projects now because Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, I've sold a book. I've got this great thing. Like I have had some sort of validation on the, on the platform that matters to me. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And I feel somewhat like, well, is this not okay that I feel more comfort sure. because I've had this external validation now because I've had some sort of l level of tangible success. Yeah. And now I'm like se sort of second guessing that. Sure. So now, that's where I'm at. Neil, yeah. Neil Brennan talks about this and uh, Neil Brennan, comedian who is, I love him. yeah, he, he has, he struggles with like, I guess, depression and he's gone through like, he did like a lot of, I think he may even did, uh, maybe he did electroshock therapy. I know he did ketamine mm -hmm. for a while and. Um, trying to uh, understand but also combat the sort of depression. What he realized is that when he would sell something like a, spe a Netflix special or something, he, he's like, the problem is that that does make me happy in the yes. moment. And what happens is we confuse pleasure with, with contentment. Mm -hmm. and, and pleasure is fine. I, we all want pleasure, but it when it becomes the pursuit, we, there's all, we could all do heroin right now and, and, and experience extreme <laughs> pleasure, right? I don't believe you, let's try it. <laughs> <laughs> How could you not believe me? You're the one person who would know. <laughs> I forget. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and, and you know, and in fact, Ryan, you know, we talk about a lot of people use things, but Ryan was spending five grand a month on opioids at the sort of nadir of, of all of it. Yeah. and experiencing pleasure but then all, all of a sudden you know falling further down that sinkhole mm -hmm. in a way because it, it it then creates a new threshold for you right yeah. and and or a new baseline is maybe a better way to describe it and it's not that um in fact you i wrote this down you said uh, uh, chasing the wrong things that presupposes there are right things to chase <laughs> right mm. and and the 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 problem is that the chasing always leads us to misery mm. it, without a doubt so we're not actually running toward happiness we're running away from misery mm. and and so what you're saying is in the moment i've i have a reprieve from this misery and we mistake the reprieve from misery for tranquility or equanimity. But mm -hmm. you think of the times where you had true peace, true tranquility. Yeah, in fact, here's the way to think of peace. Peace is, is happiness at rest. Happiness is peace in motion is maybe another way to think about it. And, and so it, whenever you've had those moments of, of actual bliss or peace, you know, we, we, we don't have to talk about the definitions of these things, whatever we want to call these words, it, it never has to do with an achievement. An achievement, sim I think about you know spending time with my wife, or, or you know certain occasions with my wife, or when Ryan and I are on the road, we have some sort of you know peak experience at, at a tour stop or whatever. It's never the thing that like, yeah, I mean we've spoken in front of fifteen thousand people before. That's just talk about interrupting your tranquility, mm -hmm. right? Getting on a stage in front of fifteen thousand people is insane. It, or there'll be other times where we speak in front of a dozen people in. You know, Bismarck, North Dakota or something. And all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, that one question in that moment, like I was really in the moment. Yeah. And so that, that being in the moment is, is difficult to even talk about because we, c we tend to talk about it prescriptively, hmm. just be in the moment, but that, that's not what happens. We're in the moment. <laughs> we're actually, what we're really describing is a state of no mind. The mind does really awful things to us. It tells us we're inadequate. And so in a way, you gave yourself permission. As soon as someone else came to you with this external validation, as you said, you gave yourself permission to stop being miserable for a moment. Oh, my God. Like mm. skipping around the house. Yeah. 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 You know? And, 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 
elated pleasure yeah. for sure right and what's the problem with that pleasure is it's it's not lasting it is it is ephemeral hmm. peace is everlasting it can only be disrupted yeah. mm. a- and so we don't experience most of us don't experience peace on a daily basis or if we do it's so brief that we we're not even familiar with it because it's constantly interrupted whether it's literally interrupted with notifications on our phone or emails someone else's priorities or it's interrupted by negative self-talk or actually here's this is controversial it's often interrupted by positive self-talk as well Hmm. Uh, they're both garbage right one is a a cleaner piece of garbage but it's still garbage you're Hmm. doing the the self-talk is i'm convincing myself that i'm happy Hmm. as as opposed to simply being happy in the state of no mind so with that statement you're saying like like positive incantations are garbage pretty much. Yes, hmm. yeah, they are. I mean, it, right, it, yeah. it, it's, it's nice. It's, it's, it's better garbage than, than the detritus that we often tell ourselves. Yeah. But it's yeah. garbage nonetheless. Yeah. It, or maybe let's, let's, garbage has a negative connotation. I don't think garbage is negative, by the way. I have a trash can in my house. We have a trash can right over there. I'm not saying that's a bad hmm. thing. But it, but it has a negative connotation. Let's just say it's a, they're irrelevant, and so you're, mm. it's comparing two irrelevant things, one, and asking which one is less irrelevant. Yeah, I yeah, I hear you. I hear you. It's so interesting. Mm. I'm I'm so inclined to like label things and uh, judge things. Like it's how I'm oriented in a lot of ways. Yeah. Like I think there's you know the creative side where it's like oh free spirit cool and try to you know be happy wait whatever and then there's this side that's like no they're harsh and judgment and comparing and labeling and list making and that side of me is so I think it's helped me in a lot of ways yes. but it's hard to keep that one in check in mm-hmm. order to just sort of like expand my mind honestly and and not be so like set in my assumptions yes it's the tyranny yeah. of of control. Mm. Hmm. And and the yeah I'm the same way. In fact, my OCD has served me really well in right. in you know, building this whole minimalist thing. Um, and and however, it has not served me in being tranquil or being peaceful or being free. We mm. all want freedom, mm-hmm. but most of us aren't willing to pay the price for that freedom. Hmm. We say yes to a lot of things. And, and again, this isn't wrong. It's not a moral judgment. But it's, it's understanding that like real freedom comes at the exclusion of these other things that make us less free. Hmm. What about sort of picking and choosing? I feel like, t- uh, you know, for a first draft, I use my creative mind. For a second draft, I use my judger mind, where mm. then I'm like, oh, my God, half of this is shit. I can't use half of this. Mm. And I feel like there is a time and a place, or there can be a time and a place for both. Does it make sense to, I mean, I guess then it's more labeling and more assigning, but mm. to find, well, it's maybe my judger brain is really useful for me in these contexts, mm-hmm. and maybe it can just kind of take a seat and relax for these other contexts, or does that seem... I think the mind is the problem either way. <laughs> and, yeah. And, and so think about it this way. Times when you have been creating, yeah. in fact, uh, creatives often use this term flow state. So when sure. I talk about a state of no mind, I, I'm really talking about a state of meditativeness or flow state. Mm. It's, it's different than meditating. Meditating is prescriptively doing something. I'm going to sit down and, and observe the thoughts or whatever. No, 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 no. A state of no mind or meditativeness or flow state is when everything is just firing on all cylinders. And, mm. and there is... Uh, pre-linguistic people 
probably had this happening all the time because we didn't have thoughts the same way that we do now. We think in language, and language is a great problem that none of us are going to avoid at this point. We're all embedded with language. We've been acculturated to, to, to think with, with words. And, uh, but you think with little kids, they don't think with words. They don't see the bird as a bird. They, they see the bird for what it is. They see a tree not as an oak tree, but as an individual um, uh, tree or individual you know, thing that is unlabelable. And that state of no mind actually removes a lot of those labels. So when you're creating and it's going really well and you're writing or you're, you're directing or you're doing something that, that you just, if you feel really great, it gives you that state of no mind. Now, it's not that there is a creative state and then the judgment state mm. or whatever. Uh, those things, that those are also labels, as you said. Yeah. Right. When you're creating, right. you're simply creating. Yeah. I, I understand exactly what you're saying. And, and, uh, and Josh and I, um, over the last several podcasts, we've been kind of going back and forth because it's like I intellectually I understand what Josh is trying to say. But emotionally, I understand right. what you're saying as far as, hey, um, there's certain t- like when you're editing, I mean, you can have a flow state and write out a chapter. You're not going to just publish that chapter. Right. You have oh to go God. through and edit it. Yeah. So there is a statement, there, there is a state of judging per se that you're going through when you're editing. So I do, under- I do understand what you're saying. The, so I look at it personally as tools. It's like, what is, what is this judgment side of me serving? What is this creative side of me mm. serving? Where I guess there, there would be lack of judgment in the, in the example that you gave. Um, but yeah, I, I think that often because we feel like it has to be one way or the other, though, that is where we start to get, to get caught up. But certainly there are moments during the writing process and uh, help me, you know, see it. Um, I love this analogy. A little bit differently. Because the editing, because again, with editing, for uh-huh. example, like you ha- there has to be a state of, um, of awareness. I'm not even going to say judgment. For sure. Awareness yeah. is a great way to put it, yeah. actually. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. So, so I teach a writing class and the first week is about developing a writing habit. You know, it's one of those weird things where people want to be writers, but they don't spend any time writing and they think they're going to learn it via osmosis. And so like, I try to help people understand, like, if you want to write, you just write you, it, And it's the shitty first draft, what Anne Lamont would call it. And and getting the words onto the page is is what's really important. So the second week, I I talk about what we call jam session writing. And it is that. It's like jam session because you think of a a band who just gets together in a garage and they start jamming. It's not meant to be read or listened to or recorded. They're just testing some stuff out. Let's play this little riff here. Let's play this note. Oh yeah, that piano would sound good there. Oh yeah, try this on the drums. And no one, you're not publishing it, right? Mm-hmm. It's just a band sort of coming together. For a writer, the jam session is getting the words onto the page, putting a bunch of sediment onto the page. Because in week three, what I teach them is the editing process. Good writing is rewriting. And, and so, what, you, what do you do with that sediment? You pan for gold is the analogy because mm-hmm. there's a little bit of gold in there. In fact, uh, so what I do in my writing process is I spend one-third of the time writing, two-thirds editing. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. The editing is actually the part I'm, I, 
I'm often considered weird for this. It's the part I enjoy most by far. Well, it's like and polishing that, it. It's like a, I can imagine of. like a mm. like sculpting. You're sculpting, like, yeah. You're getting all the like, oh yes, like that's a really good looking forehead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. And so, so where where do we go with that analogy? So, um, a writer has to. You, know, you take Michelangelo. What what did he say? Like they asked him, like, how do you how do you you know how do you make your sculptures? And he says, well, I just take away everything that isn't oh, the sculpture, right? Yeah. right? Well, the, with a writer, you actually have to build up the rock as well. You have to get the you, you, the writing. Uh, it, often we confuse the written word, composition, with writing. That's only for the first third of the writing process. But then chiseling out the sculpture from mm. that writing mm-hmm. is really what we're doing. And so what Michelangelo did is he had that state, that flow state, the state of no mind, where he would he would get that sculpture out of the rock. Mm-hmm. And... And that doesn't require judgment. The editing process is simply sculpting the words that you've put on to the page. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that is the, the, the state where I, of all things in life, it's either editing or sex are the two times where it's like there is the true state of no mind. I'm not worried about did I leave the stove on or mm-hmm. is there, you know, is there a bill that needs to be paid? All of the, the mind is, is not functioning. And it mm-hmm. is... Yeah, it, it even feels manic at times. Mm. I don't know mm-hmm. if you identify yeah. with that. Oh, yeah. and, and so, so, but it, what it really is, is it's the removal of all the thoughts, the good thoughts, the bad thoughts. The editing process is the state of no mind for me uh, hmm. uh, more than anything else. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, let me ask you this. Well, it's funny because it's, you know, it's a language problem. I just get caught up on the words. Right, well, right, right. It, yeah. I, I'm, I'm with you. I think that, and it's, it feels like my judge are getting caught up on the words of like, yes. well, how can it be? Like, how, how does this, you know? Right, like because really. to edit literally, you have to have rules that you understand, and you are applying those rules to the editing process. You have to go with emotion. Like, am I, am I going to evoke the feeling that I'm trying to? Does this arc work? Right. Do I need to maybe pair it back here because, because it seems like too big of a jump that's unrealistic for me yeah. emotionally to have gone from here to here in that many pages? Yeah. I should probably spread this out further. It's like very kind of yes. analytical feeling. Yeah. But I also understand what Josh is saying in the sense that when you're sculpting, it, it you know, it, you don't look at it as the judgment process right but it right. but it is still happening yeah like i said it's probably a language problem well may- maybe let me rephrase it because I, instead of the language getting caught up in definition stuff let's get to the essence of it yeah because that's really what we're talking about what is the essence of this mm-hmm. and and so yes you there are there's an understanding and there is emotion involved there's a feel maybe that's not even emotion let's just use the word feeling right mm-hmm. a- and say that you feel a particular way, mm. but our thoughts, our judgments have nothing to do with it. As soon as I start judging the work and it happens, it takes me out of the flow state. Yeah. When I start judging it, oh, that line is stupid or well, whatever. That's, that's why I was careful to use the word awareness yes. when I first said it, because yeah. there is an awareness that you have to have. And yeah, the more you can withhold the judgment, I think, yeah, the more you can be in that flow state. But you mm-hmm. know, go, the, the other thing too I want to talk about is this self-talk, mm-hmm. this positive self-talk. I cannot tell you how, I don't know how many times I have been just down in the dumps and I'm just like, I have all this negative feelings and self-talk mm-hmm. and it's just keeping me down in there. And then I start to get a little bit of momentum. And then like, there's that voice that's like, you got this buddy mm. like this is all like you got this man like it's cool like just keep 
clucking away. Don't let yourself get back down in that suck hole or sinkhole, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is, I guess, again, talking about these things being a tool. Like I see that self-talk as um, it, it is a useful tool sometimes. I, I, it's definitely a tool. Yeah. yeah. Suffering's a tool as well. And in fact, it's probably the most useful tool out of everything in, yeah. in life. Mm-hmm. So yeah, all these things are tools. It's it's for me. It's like how are we using these tools? Because ultimately, what if if we could get to the terminus of what uh, Millie here is really trying to lay out for us, it would be the state of no mind, where I could just literally, um, and I've seen this with like meditation gurus. They can just like literally get into a meditative state where the eyes are rolling in the back of their head and you could just tell that like they they're there, but they're not there. Mm -hmm. And so I guess the question is, is like, you know, is that the state that I eventually want to get to, to that, to that meditative, no mind state the the, right now? I mean, I may want that in the future, but right now I can absolutely say like, no, I don't want to be that that absolute state of no mind. Sure. So I also don't want to be in the state of chasing success, right? So there's yeah. this, and I think that's, we're all trying to find that balance. And that's why I'm, I'm looking at these things as tools because some of them, uh, depending on what you're trying to do, some of them can be useful. But if, yeah, if you want to achieve that state of no mind, then you would ultimately look at, yeah, look at suffering or anything else, uh, uh, look at positive self-talk, as tools that you should completely cut out of your life. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. It, you see where I'm going with that? Yeah, it makes sense that if if what you're striving for is freedom, we're talking about freedom from the mind, right? Mm-hmm. That's ultimately what it is. Freedom from control. And, and the thing that controls us most is the mind. Mm-hmm. Right. It's the thoughts. Whether mm-hmm. the negative thoughts, positive thoughts, whatever. Mm-hmm. By the way, the negative is always so much more powerful than the positive. And that's mm-hmm. why it's like, uh, why I say it's garbage, right? Like the, we, we're, we have all this garbage that's being heaped on to us by society. You know, every attempt at success seems to be an attempt to sort of f- fill the void created by our society. And, and occasionally we can knock ourselves out of the negative thoughts with some positive incantations mm-hmm. but it still doesn't make us at peace it it and so if yeah. if what we want is peace or freedom then it is about forming a detente with with the thoughts in general and saying hey if i i'm forever going to be tethered to the bad thoughts if i'm always searching for the good thoughts because what am I searching for, really? That's just searching for pleasure hmm. because I'm so miserable from all of this negative self-talk. Hmm. Yeah. I have one thought, too, on the, on the editor thing. I feel like there are times when I'm editing something and I am very much coming from the judger place, and then there are times when I'm editing and it's more, more a puzzle for me, and it sounds like when you describe kind of that manic energy, that I get that when I'm that version of myself editing. Yes. And that's a much more... that's. That's enjoyable. Yeah. Mm. I never, initially, for the first few years, I never, I, I hated editing, honestly. I uh-huh. felt like I, all it does is discourage me. It disheartens me. It makes me feel like my work's trash. It makes me feel like there's no hope. Um, and then I don't I don't know what shifted. I guess, to your point, Ryan, it's probably the consistency of just doing it over and over until mm. it just became more familiar to me. Mm. But now uh, editing is more um, exciting because I know that I'm taking sort of suggestions from my previous self mm-hmm. and finding the shape in it and finding 
uh, and I, maybe there's some more self-trust there as well, but, but finding the good and not, and I find myself judging myself less. So to your mm-hmm. point, I feel like that's, that sort of sounds like more what you're talking about, maybe? Yeah. 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 Question yeah. mark? Your, your, your work is trash. <laughs> <laughs> and so is mine and, and it's so, so is funny because i love how he's like trying to say that without a value judgment attached to it yeah <laughs> but it's i mean it is almost impossible to not hear a value judgment when you say your well, work is trash <laughs> <laughs> and, and, right and then you actually don't hear what i followed up with right i followed up with and so was mine right but i guess if you're trying to help people get to the level you're at um it w- language is really important yeah no I, and we're gonna unpack it here <clears throat> and so uh, what does Jeanette do with her titles, right? She, mm-hmm. she does something that prods people, and, you know, whether it is, I'm glad my mom died. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, there's a value. It seems like a value judgment in that, right? Mm-hmm. But what it really does is it opens our eyes. Let me give you a different perspective here. And, and what I'm saying is, yes, we all produce trash, and that's okay. Like, he, here's in in I, fact, it's not just okay. Yeah. It is desirable, Here's what I hear you saying. Here's the analogy that I get. (laughs) Is Michelangelo, he is creating this statue. He's trying to make this statue exactly how he wants it to look. Mm -hmm. But really, if Michelangelo was enlightened, if he was truly blissful or what's, uh, uh, you know, euphoric, whatever it is, if he truly was in the state of no mind, he would just look at the rock and accept it for what the rock is. It doesn't need to be chiseled. Yeah, I don't think so. I, I, mm. I, th- I think but that's kind of. But that's. Do you see what I'm saying? That's what I'm seeing as well, and that's why I. F- I yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Like well, don't like there. Yeah. Don't even worry about the statue inside the rock. The rock is what it is, and just appreciate the rock for what it is. Right. And then I'm going. Well, how? Then how? D- then what means anything? Then who right. says what? Then I don't know where I'm going. Ah! Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's that's how I. Yeah. I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah. yeah. So here's this. No, nothing means anything. And and. and <laughs> That's incredibly freeing, right? <laughs> and, and so what I'm saying is when I say my work is trash or your work's trash or whatever, when I, Michelangelo produced a lot of trash. So what, why is the word trash so important to use here? Well, because she brought it up. And so I'm trying to use her language. <clears throat> oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. She said, I'm worried that my work is trash. And I said, well, that's not something you need to be worried about. It is. Mm-hmm. And, and that's like saying I'm worried that my shirt is black. Well, mm-hmm. it is. And, and so I'm worried that Michelangelo produced trash. He did. In fact, in order to create something of value, he had to produce trash. I, yeah, I'm trying. Yeah. So look, look, he had the giant rock. Yeah. Everything he chiseled off of that rock mm-hmm. was trash. Sure. And so it was finding the sculpture. Now, now I get your point about like becoming content with the rock as it is. Mm-hmm. But the only reason he created something great is because he couldn't not do that. So he created great trash? <laughs> well, no. Well, no. Also His like greatness also produced trash. Say, sorry, say it again? His greatness also, also produced produ- trash. Within the greatness, there was trash. No, it, it was a, a byproduct of the greatness. So the, the greatness, the thing that's left behind, is not trash. Mm. But everything oh. else that's a part of that, associated with it, required that there was trash. You, so wh- my point is you can't have the greatness... Without, Without the, trash. the trash. Okay, yeah, yes. that's absolutely right. true. That's right. where we're going. Here. But right. what I hear, yeah, but what I hear Jeanette saying is, is that the work that she makes, the statue that eventually is formed, mm-hmm. that's what she was worried about being trash. Mm. And what I heard you say is like, oh no, that statue is trash. No, 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 I, no. That's not what I said. Okay, th- but no, I'm just saying like that's what I th- that's what I heard. Did you hear? Did I feel I feel like when there's there's a. Uh, 
ideal I think most of the time I'm at a I'm at a better place when editing my work now. Yes. Previously, let's say two years ago and then further like five to two years ago, I when I would edit my work I'd think, Well, is this even worth trying to get to a better place with because mm. this is just there's no hope. Gotcha. And it would be this feeling of utter hopelessness and utter like how do like I I really didn't know how to edit my own work yet and all I knew was how to see the first draft and judge it harshly yes. is what I was doing and then I think there was a shift and I'm not sure why it was other than just the consistency of sitting down in the seat and trying my hardest time and time again mm-hmm. um, to where now I I no longer see it as like I know that there's gonna be a variety there's a lot of it's going to go away there's going to be a few things i'm like oh that still makes me laugh or like oh i think that's a good point that's worth salvaging i can say that point better whatever Mm -hmm. but in the editing process now it's it feels more like a puzzle and feels less like i get caught up in the suckle of uh of disillusionment absolutely you know you find meaning in the work that that you do a hundred percent i would say that's the biggest shift in my entire life is that i feel like what i'm doing now is worthwhile um it matters to me deeply uh in a way that it's like i I mean i I, there's nothing that i would rather uh be pursuing because it feels like the things that i'm saying are so important for me particularly uh to say and i yeah it's the thing you can't not do exactly Mm -hmm. exactly and and not in a compulsive way there's it's it's the difference there is that there have been, you know, eating, eating disorder felt like a thing that I couldn't not do, but it was so compulsive and so anxiety ridden and so obsessive. And this doesn't have, there's times when it feels manic in an exciting way, but it definitely doesn't feel uh, that unhealthy hue. Yeah, yeah. And, and we even have to be careful with healthy and unhealthy, right? Because um, you know, we, there's a line, we always draw a line where we say like, this is healthy, this isn't, right? Yeah. There's even a section in Love People Use Things where it's like, we brought on a vegan doctor, a carnivore doctor, and someone who yeah. is a normal person. Uh, <laughs> all, uh, n- 99.9% of us eat both plants and animals. Right. And, and yet, what, what we, they all agreed on a few sort of things, but even, even some of the most healthy people in the world can't define health. Mm-hmm. It literally and so when we start injecting healthy or unhealthy it just it often becomes a clever way for us to say good or bad mm. and, and so yeah um, yes maybe uh, of course you know if, if it's harmful to someone we can say that it's it's bad or that we shouldn't do it that that makes sense like if I pick up a knife and start stabbing Ryan, it's easy to say, yeah, you shouldn't do that. Hey, man, I support whatever you're passionate about. <laughs> <laughs> He's such a good friend. Um, and, and so we can say, like, we shouldn't do that, but then we've taken that should or shouldn't into everything. I shouldn't create this. But if it makes you feel the most alive, then it's the thing you can't not do. That's what I mean by can't not do. Having an eating disorder probably didn't make you feel the most alive. No, it made mm. me feel dead. Yes. Mm. Yep. And, and so that's the difference here. When we talk, when I talk about something being meaningful to you, or as you the, using your words, worthwhile, mm. like nothing is actually meaningful. Nothing is actually worthwhile. And I get that sounds like a nihilist, <laughs> but it's not. It's incredibly freeing because what it really means is I get to determine 
what is meaningful. You don't get to determine mm. for me what is meaningful. And, and I think we look for that. We look for religions or groups yep. or, or whatever to determine what is meaningful for mm. us. And it's no wonder we're so discontented because they're saying, I'm supposed to create this. I'm supposed to be a child star. I'm supposed to be six years old when I'm nine years old. Mm. <laughs> what? Like, it, and all of a sudden, we feel so discontented because I'm not living the life that I find to be fulfilling or meaningful. Uh, I'm not creating the thing right. that I find to be meaningful. I'm creating something that someone else thinks should be meaningful. Which I feel like goes back to values. And then the question is, uh, how do you fi figure out your values? I feel like it's so easy to get sort of society's constructs into your mind when establishing your values for the first time. That was a, a bump that I ran into where it's like, well, what do I actually want? Like, I mean, mm -hmm. you have to do a lot of, I think, deep self-work and ask yourself these questions of if I separate myself from everything around me and every influence I've ever had, what do I actually want? Uh, and and uh, how do I work on that being the engine of my life? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like you've had this recipe you've been living by. Yeah. It hasn't been fulfilling you. And then you give up on the recipe, but now you have to make a new recipe. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, how do you know? Yeah. It, it made me think about how when Josh and I wrote our first book, Minimalism, Live a Meaningful Life, we talk about these five areas that we go out of our way to focus on. And yeah, it was really hard to get to those five areas. Um, Figuring but, out what was our like five foundational values, basically. Right, exactly. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And, you know, I think the, the way I got there was taking a step back from all of the madness and the chasing and the, the ephemeral pleasures, whatever it was like taking a step, step back and being like, okay, at my core, what do I want out of life? Right. Well, I want to be healthy. Like without health, you don't have anything. So like, that's got to be a foundational value. Like, uh, as an extrovert and even as an introvert, like, you know, we need people in our lives that we can count on. Like that strengthens me as a human being to have relationships. So, and I won't sit here and go through all five of them, but it's when we took a step back, when I took a step back and really just asked myself that question, well, all right, if I, you know, if I start from zero, what do I need in my life? And I was kind of able to build from there. But even when you, even when you make that recipe though, again, like it's not until you consistently live that, mm -hmm. um, until you really feel comfortable with like, oh yeah, like this is, I'm doing, like I'm doing something right, you know? Well, let's talk about the, it's only the understanding of that because if it becomes a prescription, here are the five foundational values and th this is what you should focus on. Right. Then all of a sudden it becomes, it becomes, well, I don't understand why. So I guess I'll try it for a while, but real discipline doesn't work like that. Discipline is formed out of that feeling of like, oh, I can't not do this. Then you don't even need discipline. Mm -hmm. When you, yes. when it feels like, oh, I'm just firing on all cylinders. This is great. You even asked yourself, you said, what do I want? Right, but but really, it's an understanding why we want that, mm. and and, yeah. and so it. I I the only thing I disagree with what you said is it's not a compulsion. I think it's absolutely a compulsion. Oh, it's, interesting. It, yeah, it it and and we we think of compulsion as a bad thing, right? Yeah. But no, it we can be we we can be obsessive about something in a way that is incredibly beneficial to us and helpful and puts us in that state of no mind or we can be obsessive about you know cleaning the bottom of my chair with a toothbrush sort of thing and then right. like the, 
it, not, that's not wrong either. I could do that right after this. And I'm not hurting anyone. And it's fine. But is that, do I understand why I'm doing that? Right. I, I think if we understand the why, a true understanding of those values or whatever, then it, it doesn't become prescriptive. It becomes, of course, these values make sense to me right. because I do understand the why. Yeah. The prescriptive thing is interesting to me. I'm very into like planning. I, mm. I it's I, I get very into different hobbies like every quarter of a year. I don't know. Why planning is a hobby for you. Planning is a like <laughs> putting the stickers on the planner. You have I no idea it. what it does to I me. Love I'm just it. like, which sticker today? Yeah. <laughs> but so it, this 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 hobby like they also get very deep. I don't know how to do them halfway. Mm. So I got so into planning that I like watch youtubers who are planners <laughs> that oh, is wow. the proper that is awesome that is awesome um, i actually envy <laughs> that desire because i wish that i was more uh organized in my life really? with certain things yeah so it's but it's funny how anything taken to the extreme can be a little oh yeah, yeah. i mean it's they're, they're definitely character there are some characters uh in as the, as these youtubers can be characters and one of them was talking about how she had set herself goals and she like has her little habit tracker and she tracks her goals every single day and she had like this kind of vulnerable uh post about how she like didn't know what to do because one of her goals didn't feel so important to her anymore mm. and she's like but it's a goal on my sheet it's one of my six goals. Like yeah. I don't know what I should be doing if I don't. And it was it was really I think to your point, Josh. It was it, it spoke to me of like oh so this is what what happens when it's like so rigid and so stuck on the list and the goals and whatever. Whereas you know it makes you miserable. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 Oh, especially like you lay it out, you put it on the list, and then you're like, wait, I don't want to do this thing. Yeah. But if I take it off, then I haven't completed the list. I failed. I'm but incomplete. Then, <laughs> yeah. Well, and then the planner part of me was like, that is true, because what sticker is she going to put there now? <laughs> <laughs> no sticker. <laughs> Here's the thing about prescriptions. Uh, prescriptions don't work. Um, uh, they they work for very mechanical things. Like yeah. if I want to learn how to ride a bike. <laughs> if you get a bed from Ikea. <laughs> <laughs> right. And you have to put that together. Right. But if I right. want, if I want to design my own bed, mm. there's no prescription for that. Right. 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 A- and, and so any, anything that is great, you know, greatness, whether it's just the, your individual life and the way you're living or a piece of art that you're working on. Yeah. Prescriptions don't help. Prescriptions are a balm. They're, they're, they, 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 they help with symptoms, right? So habit change does not work. Discipline does not work. All of these things are byproducts of a deeper understanding of why I'm doing what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. That, that compulsion actually gives us the discipline. And because it, the how-to sort of thing, it's the reason Ryan and I don't do the, here are the 43 ways to declutter your closet. How to declutter your closet. Everyone knows how to declutter their closet. Your problem is not a shortage of decluttering tips. <laughs> <laughs> your problem is, is, is not understanding why we want to do that. Maybe you don't even want to do it all. So don't feel compelled to do it because some guy from Dayton, Ohio said that you should do it. You shouldn't do it. Don't listen to me. I'm not telling you to declutter anything. But if you understand that those things are making you miserable, have a true understanding of it, the how-to takes care of itself. You know, in fact, you know, when Ryan and I first embraced minimalism, we didn't follow anyone's recipe. Mm-hmm. We took a bunch of different recipes that were out there and said, oh, I like that ingredient. I like that yeah. one. I like that one. I'll create my own recipe. Because if I just follow the 43 tips, if I just follow the productivity hacks and all these other things, I'm going to be miserable mm-hmm. because that's their recipe. That's not going to work for me necessarily or it will like i said on a very mechanical level how Mm -hmm. to ride a bike okay 
But if you want to become Lance Armstrong, then there's no how-to manual. Mm. In fact, if you were to give Lance Armstrong the exact steps how to become Lance Armstrong, even he wouldn't become Lance mm-hmm. Armstrong yeah. because it has to do with the deep understanding of what you truly want. Yeah. Well, recipes, the how-tos, I mean, that's kind of the easy fix, right? I mean, that's why I really uh, was, you know, into being one of Jehovah's Witnesses, man. Like, uh-huh. they had all the answers. Like, I knew exactly why we were here. I knew how to live my life. I knew what was going to happen. Yes. I knew how to survive what was going to happen. So, you know, having that how-to is so much easier. The difficult thing is trying to figure out for yourself. And that's why we look for how-tos, because some of us don't want to face uh, to face that challenge. Yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. The, in fact, uh, this essay just came out. Uh, we haven't even sent the email out for it yet. By the time this comes out, maybe you'll be able to check it out. Put a link to this in the show notes, Sean. I wrote an essay called You Cannot Fix Anything. Mm. And really the – actually, if you mind pulling that up, Sean, maybe on your phone if you've got it, we can, we can read a, a brief excerpt from it. But fundamentally, I think that's the problem is we are constantly going around trying to fix yeah. everything. If I could just fix this or fix that and it becomes the we become so preoccupied by the fix that we don't actually understand what what the problem is in the first place before we get to that let's read mike's question here why do i have that feeling what is the cause of the emptiness so i have a tweet here that i wanted to to read i tweeted this uh, a couple months ago and I thought this would answer the question, but it would also give us an opportunity to expand on it. Every, I, this was originally an essay I was working on, and it was just, well, no, this is a complete thought in one single tweet, so I don't need to turn it into an essay. Minimalist. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone experiences the same gaping void. That void is a figment of your imagination. It was manufactured by corporations and culture. Owning everything won't fill it. Owning nothing won't remove it. A void created by externalities cannot be sealed with externalities. Mm. And so I think quite often, yes, we are acculturated. Now, in our documentary, and uh, uh, Annie, um, she, Annie Leonard, she talked about deficit advertising. Mm-hmm. How advertisers get you to buy their stuff is they make you feel as though you're incomplete. Mm-hmm. They, they create the void in order for you to fill the void, right? And so... What I'm saying is there are two sort of voids here. One is the void we talked about. There's the Grand Canyon, the natural void that exists in all of us. And, and then there's this other void that is by that Grand Canyon. We, have, we, don't, we, we don't want to fill it. We shouldn't feel compelled to fill it, right? Uh, you, can feel, you can fill it if you want, but realizing that it's not going to actually ever be full. You're not going to fill in the void. You mm-hmm. can pave the entire Grand Canyon and you're going to miss the entire point. Right. Then there's this other void. And you're going to miss the Grand Canyon. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And you're going to be out of a lot of concrete. <laughs> now, here's the other void, though. Hmm. There's a separate void that is created, manufactured by corporations, by advertisers, by, by even people who mean well, hmm. the, who define success for you. If you have a certain number of Twitter followers, now you're successful. Mm. If you are on this TV show, now you're successful. They've, and, and what have they done? They created the void, and then they've showed you how to fill it. They gave you a how-to even, how to fill it. And then you fill it, and you're like, what the fuck? I, I don't feel anything different. If anything, now I still feel more discontented. Well, it's because 
that void was yeah. was not real in the first place. Yeah. Now I feel guilty because I have the solution and I don't feel better. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and again, the solution is the problem, yeah. right? Yeah. Do you have that pulled up by chance, Sean? Let me take a look oh, here. So, you know, I just I want to pause it that the void that we all feel the, the this this feeling that Mike is talking about it's not it's not a hole it's not you know a, it's not an actual void what it is it's this like intrinsic desire uh to do something yes it's it's an intrinsic desire uh that it's almost like this built up energy that like we have to it's just it's a desire it's it's not a whole it's more of a desire that we but we don't know what we desire right and we and we and therefore we we feel as though we must take action right and we must do something but the doing should also be a byproduct of the understanding instead of how to it's the how to it's the why to develops into the the how to because mm. if you know why you're creating whatever you're creating mm -hmm. Jeanette, you'll figure out how to do it right whether it's a podcast or a book or a play, or a film, whatever it might be, you, mm -hmm. you'll figure out how to do it. That's not the hard part. Yeah, in fact, it's so easy if you understand the why. It doesn't mean that it's always going to be um, seamless, but but it will. The the how to will take care of itself. Yeah. I'm wondering how this would be affected if there was like a marketing firm that was <laughs> just given billions of dollars to market the void. Like, yeah. would people be excited about it? Would they be like, eh, I'm not going to buy it? Would they see it, you know, eight times or however long it takes for an ad to, like, imprint in your mind and mm -hmm. then think, like, oh, maybe I should explore that void a little more? Yeah. Well, yeah. Th there's the what would be fascinating. I mean, th it would have to be a charitable contribution in a way because there's no money in telling you you're already complete. Right. Mm. <laughs> right. 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 Exactly. <laughs> and exactly. In fact, uh, uh, we, we can do this. We, we could. We can talk about this here uh, for the maximal, but um, it's not something that I'll make fully public yet. What what I do want to what we're working on right now is a uh, potential documentary called Advertisements Suck, <laughs> and so it's really defining what that what does that mean, and it's a really about the void. Yeah. And I, the irony is, I'd love for Netflix or whoever ends up w working on it with us to just do advertisements everywhere, like giant billboards mm -hmm. to say advertisements suck, just mm -hmm. all over the place, <laughs> and and, and helping people understand, like, I think it's one of the biggest problems in our society today because it creates so much discontent. I 100% agree. And mm. we see four to 10,000 a day. We don't even oh recognize gosh. that we see that many. Yeah. That's not me going around counting. That's Forbes who said we see <laughs> four to 10,000 a day. And, and we don't even realize how much we're being told how incomplete we are, how yeah. empty you are, and what is the implication of that? It's that that's a bad thing. Mm. But being empty inside is actually what we're, we want to go for mm. in the first. I want that emptiness. W w how, do, how, do we, how do we say empty in a positive connotation? Still. S yeah, stillness, yeah. spaciousness. Yeah. It, when, when you walk into a, a, a great room and someone's trying to sell you a house, they don't say it looks really empty. They say it looks spacious. <laughs> yeah. And that slight reframing is all of a sudden, oh, yeah. And so maybe it's that spaciousness inside mm. that is really welcoming and joyous. Mm. Here's you cannot fix anything. We spend our days striving to remedy our problems. Every day we scramble to, quote, fix our relationships, our anxiety, our discontent, 
our dissatisfaction. When we encounter money problems, we fix them with budgeting tools. When we run into career problems, we fix them by switching out our corporate overlord. When we experience health problems, we fix them by easing the symptoms with painkillers. But these remedies don't work because they don't fix anything. Why? Because there is no fix. No newfound permanence. There is only change. As soon as something is fixed, the world will change and it will become unfixed, exposing the truth. It was never fixed in the first place. Even with a precise budget, our mon money problems persist. Even with a new boss, our, our career problems remain. Even with a strong elixir, our health problems endure. Real change is intrinsic. Internal factors or external factors are incidental. If we have a problem, it is useless to try to fix it. We must understand the problem if we seek to eliminate it. So let's hmm. talk about this here. Eliminating a problem is different from fixing the problem. Now, we can use it, again, not, not to get caught up in definitions. If we mean to eliminate a problem, great. Mm -hmm. But I think quite often what we're trying to do is, is we're, we're taping a bunch of Band-Aids onto an axe wound and wondering, like, oh, I stopped the bleeding temporarily. Mm -hmm. Why isn't this fixed? Yeah. Well, because there's a deeper problem there hmm. that we're going to have. And we may even have to amputate the limb in order to survive. Yeah. The costs are much higher than we often think. Hmm. hmm. We can bask in this stillness for a yeah. moment. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just, yeah. I'm, well, again, it's, it's a language thing. It's like, you know, my, we'll get to the essence instead of the language. What is the essence? The of? essence for me, what you're trying to say is that instead of trying to fix something, you know, focus on changing, focus That's on prescriptive, focus on, um, well, I think it, isn't it also prescriptive to say you can't fix anything? I mean, that's a prescription that says, what am I prescribing for people to stop worrying about fixing things? Oh, I didn't say, that. I don't want you to stop anything. Don't listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I'm just, I'm trying to get, cause like when I think about actual fixing, if a chair leg is broken, uh -huh. right? Yeah. Like there is a way to fix it. So now it's functional. Yeah. Um, so that, use that, you know, with what you're trying to say with that essay, can you use that uh, as a metaphor for what we're trying to fix in ourselves? Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yes, the, the chair is the mechanical thing where mm -hmm. yes, the how to's the fixing you, you can do that. Yes. Right. Um, anything that is deeper than, a surface level elementary mechanical thing mm -hmm. that's where we get caught up in these fixes because we think that we're going to solve the problem yeah. with a solution whereas the only real solution is the eradication of the problem yeah so what's the problem mm. if we if we understand that problem we truly understand it we might understand that it's not actually a problem at all yeah and and, and all the things like the trash thing is a great example of that. Like it feels like it's a problem, but no, the trash is actually just part of it. It's part of the creative process. And when we love the trash, then all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, because I love the whole process. Mm. Not that I love it in terms of attachment, but uh, if, you know, attachment isn't love. But, but if, if I've formed a detente, if I accept and respect the trash, yeah. 
is is part of the path that yeah. gets me there. Maybe you can relate to that example because that's what I I feel like where I'm understanding it the most or kind of grasping at understanding it the most. Um, mm-hmm. To me, yeah, the I f- I feel like my work has gotten significantly better since embracing the editing process versus fighting against it versus letting it get me down. How yeah, can you use this the example of the sort of flow of editing mm-hmm. to what you're saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so the betterment is is also part of the problem in a way. Self improvement is one of the biggest scams that we've been taught. You've been taught that you're supposed to improve yourself or improve your work or improve whatever, right? But in a weird way, like we don't do that with babies, right? How do I improve my baby? Like hopefully, it, it, right, right, it, <laughs> right. Well, right, it, or it leads to you know, yeah, yeah, uh, like uh, in a non child stars <laughs> with <laughs> lots of yeah, <laughs> right, uh, and, and and so so, well, why don't we do that with a baby? Because the baby's perfect, mm. and, and so it's just maybe how do I nourish the baby? Hmm. And and really, I think the job as a as a parent, and I've you know I failed miserably at this because I didn't always understand it, and I'm just grasping it now. A parent's job is to not parent their children. And and what I mean by that is like every time we try to improve on on the child, we actually remove something from the, the that is natural. Their their nature. And the same thing is true with your work. And you're in in a sort of weird way, our work tends to be our, you know, our babies. Right. Right? And so our creative babies. And as soon as we try to improve our babies, we're actually you're sort of covering them up in a way. Hmm. And so it's not about improving or, or the betterment of the project. It's doing the best I can because I can't do anything different. You know, writing this book, I, I couldn't, I literally couldn't be happier with the book, but at the same time, I didn't write it so that I would be, th- that I would achieve some sort of outcome with it mm-hmm. in fact if it never comes out the process of of writing it was was really the mm-hmm. the reward everything else will probably get in the way of my tranquility and i have to be really careful with that because now the the monkey mind will come in and say how can i make it better yeah what if what if it comes out and there's and every single review is like this is astonishing this is the greatest piece of work that's ever been written sure. and, and there's zero negative reviews mm-hmm. everybody who reads it you know sells millions of copies then would that disrupt your tranquility if it's 100% positive? Yes. Yeah, yeah. even more so. Hmm. Yeah. Let me explain why. Yeah. Because if the only reason the negative uh, comments get to me is because I need the good ones. <laughs> right? Because yeah. if I didn't need Absolutely. the good ones, right. the, the negative ones wouldn't mean anything either. Right. right? Now, so uh, yeah. because the negative it usually <laughs> is saying something that it isn't true. And, and, and the same is also true sure, with the positive. Sure, right? Sure, totally. And so... You can recognize that if if I were to ha- say I was a, a a theater reviewer and I, I went out and I reviewed your one woman show sure. and I I said it's really hard to believe that Jeanette is uh, she drinks water the entire time during the uh, <laughs> the performance and you're like well no I don't you, it'd be easy for you to dismiss that sure. because you're like well this person clearly doesn't know what uh, what I'm talking about but that's really what someone's saying you know the the people are always texting Ryan that he's a chair now because we this this <laughs> came up uh, if if I say your book sucks it, it, you feel a particular way about it right. but if I go to Ryan and say Ryan you're a chair yeah it's like, that's right. a weird comment right 
Yeah, right. well, what does that even mean? I'm I mean, a chair. I, get, I have arms and legs. I get it, but like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a chair. Beyond like, that, I'm, yeah, you don't actually get frustrated by it. Sure. And 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 I think the the same thing is true with with the work. Mm. Is you know, uh, you're never as good as they say you are. You're never as bad as they say you are. Right. Mm-hmm. But needing that validation is the only reason the criticism hurts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I mm. think. A, a couple of things with all of that praise that you're talking about, Jeanette, like to me, that's kind of like uh, a drug experience. You're getting all of this ephemeral pleasure from this good feedback. But, you know, what I, and I totally agree with Josh, like that would take away from my tranquility because what's happening is I'm going to be elated. But if I'm up here, there's eventually going to be, yeah. you know, oh, you can't have the peaks without the valleys. Yeah. So personally, I try to be very careful with how much I, you know, take in the positive things. Same thing with the negative. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, it's okay to feel good. Like, you know, you mentioned earlier about how you sold your book and you're skipping around the house. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. No. There's nothing wrong with that at all. In fact, I think you should celebrate it. The, The problem is when we take our happiness, our tranquility... And we make it based off of getting that recognition mm. or getting that book deal. Any yeah. of the externalities. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing wrong with celebrating it. The problem is is when you rely on those celebratory moments to feel complete right. or to tell yourself like, well, this is this is the only way I'm going to be complete because eventually there's going to be um, a time where you're not mm-hmm. selling a book. Mm-hmm. So uh, again, uh, no reason to not celebrate. I don't think it's just, you know, don't rely on the celebration. The celebration is like, it's a product of everything that you've put into it. Uh, and you've got to that celebratory part, but really like the important part was like that, um, you know, the journey and don't get me wrong. Like the destination is also important. Um, in fact, you couldn't have the journey without the destination. Right. When, when you were coming here today uh, to the studio, you had to plug in an address into the GPS, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so I think what the problem is that we, uh, we, we put all of our stake in the destination mm-hmm. and we forsake the journey. Or now the sort of new age spiritual thing is to say it's all about the journey, not the destination. Well, that's nonsense too, right? Because if you didn't have an arrival in mind, you would have never even taken the trip in the first right. place. Mm-hmm. I'm going to Disney World. I want to go to Disney World. Right. right. I just <laughs> want the airplane ride. <laughs> yeah. And so, so uh, you, it, the, the key is that, well, I can enjoy both. And, yes. and, and the profound truth about it is you can enjoy both equally. Mm-hmm. And, and sure. I think too often we drudge through the the process and we forget to that this is pure joy writing this book is pure joy and we turn it into pure drudgery and then of course we get there and wonder why we feel so empty (laughs) as a result Mm. we got some questions here how about we read jennifer's question the emptiness for me originates with the feeling i am watching the world break down we aren't living the way we evolved to live with family and tight-knit groups we aren't eating the way we evolved to eat our society has become very individualistic materialistic violent and unjust Mm. this isn't the way life should be Mm. to cope i overeat i keep eating to fill the void that is left from feeling like humanity has gone off the deep end what can i do 
Oh, man. Let's talk about the, the eating thing in a second. But before we get there, I just want to challenge something in the question. Yeah. Our society has become very individu- individualistic, correct? Materialistic, yes. Mm-hmm. Violent, yes. And unjust, okay, yes. Um, no question about that. I mean, I, one might say that we're more just than we have been over the last thousand, several thousand years. Yeah. However, there's still a lot of injustice that's going on in our society. But... The next sentence in there is, this isn't the way life should be. Or rephrase that. This isn't the way that life is supposed to be. Yeah. I I don't know that I completely agree with that. I totally agree with that statement. Yeah, because here's the thing. Um our you agree with her statement? No, I agree with what you're the challenge that you're presenting to her right now. Because we did evolve to be violent. We're we're violent creatures. Right. Now the, the question is, can we transcend that nature of ours. Yep. Uh, you know, we're all a byproduct of violence and sexual abuse somewhere down our lineage at some point. Mm-hmm. We have no control over that, but here we are right now. And so the question is, do we transcend those the uh, harmful? Because it is harmful, th- these things. Uh, now, is it harmful to be individualistic? Not necessarily. Um, the, the question is, is it beneficial for you to give up some of that individualism because you want to be part of a community. It's an individual choice, by the way. Uh, Materialistic, yeah, I think we probably evolved to be somewhat materialistic. Uh, Now, not to hoard things, but to to be part of the material world. In fact, in our first film, Juliet Shore, I don't know if you remember this line, she says, I think the problem is we're not materialist enough. We treat our things as though everything is disposable and nothing uh, really matters to us, and therefore we're sort of ruining the de- environment where the world is breaking down, as Jennifer says. So what she does to cope is she overeats. Now, I identify with that. When Ryan and I first met, I was the fattest kid in, in our school. I, um, I I think at 12 years old, I weighed 240 pounds. I was massive, massively obese. Um, you, you can see pictures of me from uh, when I was young in our last film. And um, really mullet. cute. I yeah, love the mullet. Yeah, the, the mullet was go back to a that. nice touch. <laughs> we should go back to a mullet. <sighs> <sighs> anyway, <laughs> it was a type of control, right? And so um, she's trying to cope with the world breaking down. Now, mm. clearly, the fix here is not solving any of the external problems. What are your thoughts on this mm. question? I very much relate to the eating as well. I, on top of bulimia, anorexia, I also had binge eating disorder for a few years. Um, And for me, it was back to the control thing where I was trying to control my outs. I was trying to control my feelings because I couldn't control my outside uh, surroundings or really didn't have much authority over my own life. And uh, I, I didn't have the tools to handle my own emotions mm. honestly that that was what was lacking for me at the time and why I think I was just turning so much to food for any semblance of control mm. um, a sh- the, the main shift for me was being able to handle and manage my own emotions that was like I mean life-changing for me and it sounds so simple and it seems like well how fucked up were you that you couldn't handle your emotions but I, I really did not have the tools to do so I did not know how to how to navigate them at all and what did that look like what what emotions are we talking about because what, what I find fascinating about this is yeah. we always want to handle our quote-unquote negative emotions yes. right yes um, however joy like joy joy is different from happiness and one 
key element is that true joy, or what we might even call peace or tranquility, makes room for these so-called negative emotions as well. Yeah. So handling them doesn't mean to get rid of them, right? Totally. 100%. And that was definitely a learning curve for me as well because I thought, oh, this is great. I get to get rid of all my negative emotions <laughs> with therapy. Um, that's not at all it. And uh, also it was really helpful for me to change that language from negative emotions to difficult emotions. So I mm -hmm. struggle more with certain difficult emotions. Those for me are shame, uh, jealousy, anger, sadness, mm -hmm. uh, disappointment, a variation of sadness, but those were very, very difficult for me. And I felt like there was only permission to be happy, to be um, any sort of variation of happy. That's those, That was the only sort of emotion that I felt like it was okay to be. Uh, and I think that was conditioned from my mom, from my uh, upbringing, Mormon upbringing, and from all my environments that I had been in up to that point. Uh, so then those difficult emotions, I, I certainly still feel them. Mm -hmm. I still feel them. I'm, I'm a big feeler, so I still feel them in big ways. Mm -hmm. It's not even like the dial on them has necessarily changed significantly, though it has changed some. But ha what I do with those emotions now looks night and day different. Uh, I feel proud to say that I'm a functioning, happy, uh, relatively happy, content person. And that is something that I never even thought was possible. Like I couldn't comprehend what life would have looked like uh, today for me 10 years ago. Yes. Mm. Yeah. So, so talk to me about some of these individual emotions because I know the people who are listening to this. They also struggle with jealousy, which I tend to think of as a wasted emotion. But in a way, it doesn't mean that it's not r real. For you, it was very yes. real and I'm sure it still appears, right? And there's probably a difference now for you that you're not a jealous person, but jealousy appears within you. Yep. Yep. And but how, how how would that manifest? Well, I, it's so interesting because I feel like jealousy is the one that you can't talk about. It's like the he who shall not be named or whatever from Harry Potter. It's like <laughs> we can kind of talk about sadness. We can talk about grief. We're OK talking about anger even. Mm -hmm. But jealousy is the one that it's like, no, support everybody, love everybody, be happy for everybody. But then it leads to that shame. And I think I felt a tremendous amount of shame around my jealousy. So that was another aspect of therapy was understanding primary and secondary emotions for me. And, you know, jealousy would be my primary and then shame would be the secondary mm -hmm. to then I would feel so much shame kick up that I would try to deny the jealousy, which would then make it worse because I try and tell myself, well, no, you can't be jealous because then that means you're a bad person. Mm. Well, no, you can't be jealous because that means you're petty and you're whatever. And it's like, okay, it's fine if I'm feeling a jealous feeling uh, that doesn't, and it's fine if I even have negative thoughts followed by that, that yeah. jealous feeling uh, is just a matter of not having any, at first it's a matter of like curbing the negative behavior that's attached to the thoughts or it was for me. And then uh, it was a matter of ideally working toward having less of those negative thoughts uh, or those d difficult thoughts uh, as, as time went on with like yeah. more experience, I guess. The, the way I look at jealousy or anger or any difficult emotion, yes. <laughs> Uh, they are symptoms of something deeper going on. So when I feel mm. jealous, um, you know, I, I will ask myself, well, why do I feel jealous? Well, you know, it's because, you know, there's some kind of expectation that I'm not meeting or someone else that I know isn't meeting. And like, but it helps me to get to like, oh, these are expectations that I have. Mm. And, you know, whether it's with anger or jealousy, for me, often it roots back to some type of expectation. And I know when I'm able to let go of expectations, I I live a much freer life. I mean, speaking of expectations, like Jennifer's question here, her expectation is, well, life shouldn't be this way. Mm. And if she could step back and be like, well, 
life it just is like we are where we're at yes and there's no should there only is in this case right mm. exactly and, and and if jennifer could accept like oh that even to the extent of accepting like yes we are essentially animals that you know have a prefrontal cortex and we have language uh-huh. but for all intents and purposes i mean we are impulsive animals and yes it would be nice to transcend and i'm not even going to say i wish we could transcend because i know that even wishing um brings up uh, a different conversation yeah it fastens us to the future sure but uh but yes uh, it's taking a step back and and looking at those expectations and asking ourselves like is this expectation really serving me and if it's creating all these negative emotions then the expectation is not it's it's not serving you mm. yes um now can we talk to Jeanette here about when you talk about jealousy, can, do you have any examples you'd be comfortable sharing, or maybe even a little uncomfortable with sharing, sure. uh, about times where you felt jealous in the past and how that sort of rose within you? I think it was a huge dry, uh, contributing factor to my eating disorders. I think mm-hmm. you know being jealous of other people's bodies and thinking, well, why can't mine look that way? And mm-hmm. does my body uh, negatively impact my career? It's you know very conventional for actresses to be very thin, uh, and I would you know, certainly have a lot of jealousy slash envy toward those examples. Mm. And then one one other example that I don't want to tread on too much because I've talked about it a bit, but, and you know from the One Woman Show, Ryan, but <laughs> my co-star was Ariana Grande, who's biggest, you know, at this time she was skyrocketing to be the biggest pop star. And I, it, being in the presence of her consistently made me feel inadequate. Mm-hmm. And, and I would feel jealous of, well, why does she get all these opportunities? Why am I not getting the same opportunities? We're on the same show where the, it's not even like, you know, like one of us is more main than the other. It's a two-hander show. Like, why am I not getting the same opportunities? Even though she was pursuing pop music, which is a thing that I would never want to pursue. Like, it didn't even logically I could go well this doesn't even make sense to be comparing myself to this person mm. maybe it makes more sense to be comparing myself to somebody who had wanted to write and direct some you know up and coming young filmmaker or something like that so I would try and uh, intellectualize the emotion which was also making it worse uh. because it wasn't just allowing myself to feel it yes. I wouldn't just go I feel this it's okay you're okay and then you know doing the work doing the self work instead I would try and intellectualize and think that somehow that was like helping me but it was not at all yeah because now you're telling yourself you shouldn't have that emotion right right, right, yeah. right and then exactly. also you're adding another layer on here you know what here's the problem i should compare myself with another person <laughs> yes. right. not the person i'm comparing myself with yes. yeah. not realizing yes. that the comparison is actually the thing that's creating yeah. the emotion yeah exactly exactly yeah we have a question here from amy <laughs> mm. i'm encouraging my mom to declutter but what language can I use that is compassionate and not insulting? It's funny. I paused there for a moment because it, this is a very polite way of saying I'm trying to talk my mom into decluttering. Yeah, I'm trying to convince someone of something. Right. And this is what I was talking about earlier on, I think it was earlier in the Maximal here, but uh, when we were talking about uh, the self talk is just convincing ourselves yeah. now think about the worst time that someone tries to convince you of something it's you go to buy a used car and you're at the used car sales lot and there's like the stereotypical used car salesman or appliance salesman or some salesperson who is 
trying to convince you to buy what they are selling. Mm. Or even worse, if a telemarketer somehow gets through to you and they're trying to convince you of something, how do you feel when someone is trying to convince you of something, Jeanette? Oh God, it makes me so anxious and it makes me actually resist it more mm -hmm. because I'm very, as much as I, I have a controlling tendency myself, if somebody else is trying to control me, suddenly I'm all prickly and don't want anything to do with it. Right. You know? And, and so I think in a way, the, even the self-talk, the, the, so, the so-called positive thoughts um, are a way of convincing and we're all turned off to that sort of convincing. Mm -hmm. and. That's why sometimes I'll talk about on this podcast, like, I don't want to convince you of anything. Mm. It's not, in fact, if you get help from this, great. If not, too bad. Like, it, it, that's okay as well. I, I can't be tethered to that outcome that I'm going to convince you of something because I'm going to be miserable. And then, you know what, Ryan, if I keep trying to convince you, you're probably going to be miserable as well. Mm. Then we're just going to stew on our own sort of misery together. Yeah. And I, I bring all this up to say, Amy, you... You, I get the encouragement. I'm not saying yeah. it's wrong to encourage someone. When is it most appropriate to encourage someone? When they're looking for encouragement. When they're asking yep. for help. Otherwise, you're actually just trying to convince them that your point of view is right. Now, what does convincing yeah. do? It places you on a pedestal. You don't even realize it. But if I put myself on a pedestal, now I'm talking down to you. Mm. That's actually meta-inconsiderate. Yeah. And, and so when we talk to Amy about using language that is compassionate and not insulting well her question presupposes that if i were to talk to if i try to convince my mom to declutter it's not compassionate yeah that's true if you try to convince someone of anything mm. it's not the most compassionate thing to do yeah i think you know the question uh may i was going to say that she should be asking but maybe not should, but a more powerful question that would help in this situation is just cut out that I'm encouraging my mom to declutter a piece of it and just say, uh, what language can I use that is compassionate and not insulting? So how can mm. you show your mother more compassion? Like that's where you start. Yeah. And then if she wants some help, she'll ask for it. But whenever you're encouraging someone to do something that you feel they should be doing, you're placing your judgment on them. So really... Amy, what I hear you saying is, is like, you know, I'm at my mom's house. She's surrounded by clutter. Um, I couldn't live like her. So I'm trying to encourage her to live a life that I feel like myself I could live. And that is, that's really not helping your mother as much as it's helping you, Amy. Mm. So if, if you do want to, you know, have, if, if, if you want to help people make changes, you have to approach it from a way of uh, supporting them and, and being compassionate with them. We were talking off uh, offline about um, this major breakthrough I had in therapy with my parents and how, and I've talked about this before on the podcast, how I realized that as a child, I put all of these, this expectations onto my parents that, you know, they should have everything figured out. And this is how my, sh my parents should be. And here's what I would do if I was my parents. And here's how I would treat me. And really, as an adult, I realized like, oh, wait a minute. Like, I'm 40, I'll be 40 years old this year. I don't have everything figured out. Um, my parents had me at 20. So wow. in what world should I look at them and say, oh, well, those 20-year-olds or even those 30, when I was 10 years old, those 30-year-olds, they should have done X, Y, or Z. It's like, they don't have it figured out either. They still don't have it figured out. Yeah. And that's, it's really powerful for me because what it has helped me do, it has helped me to respect the battles 
that my my uh, parents are facing. And what does Rob Bell say? Everyone, everyone has their own battle. Every single person has their own battle. Mm-hmm. And understand that, that no matter who you run into, we're all fighting something inside. Mm-hmm. And once I could see that with my parents, it really helped me let go of that expectation of how my parents should be. Because really, I feel like they don't appreciate my battle. Mm. They don't go out of their way to try and understand the battles that I go through. So it, it makes me defensive and it makes me want to get angry and like, you know, tell them uh, my point of view and why they should see it this way. But then I realized, like, well, wait a minute. If I want my parents to respect my battle, I have to first and foremost respect their battles. And the best way to do that is to show compassion. Yeah. In fact, it's, it's, it's the only way to do it, right? So wow. compassion means to be with someone in their suffering, calm and pass us, which is the sort of etymology of the world mm. word. So it's different, different from empathy. Empathy means to feel what someone else is feeling. Compassion just means that I recognize that you're suffering. Mm. I don't have to feel that suffering, mm. but I can be with you in that suffering. I can respect the suffering. Mm-hmm. And as soon as we're able to do that, and it's even harder in a way to do it with our parents because we do have that expectation that they're perfect mm. because they are to us when we're a, a little baby, they're everything, mm. right? Yeah. And I'm sure you saw this with, with your mom. Yeah. She was everything. And then when you realize as you got older, like, oh, there's, she's suffering as well. Mm. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I, uh, I mean, I have very complicated feelings uh, toward her, certainly. I, just as I started to kind of realize, come to that realization that like, oh, she wasn't, she wasn't perfect and she has her own flaws, happened to be right as she was diagnosed with her second uh, occurrence of cancer. So that was, you know, it was difficult to kind of start to get to the, I hit those instincts a little bit late, the like adolescent, oh, maybe mom's not perfect, maybe I'll rebel a little bit. I hit those probably around 18. I feel like a lot of people hit them a bit earlier. Um, but I fought though I had, I felt that I had to fight those instincts because that was then when she was diagnosed with cancer. So I felt like I couldn't accept, uh, taking her down off of that pedestal yes. while she was dying. Like I needed to keep her on the pedestal while she was alive. I need to do this. Mm. Um, and it was only sort of after she passed and once I had some space from her passing and then finding out pieces of my childhood and and getting a fuller picture of her than the version of herself that she had uh, presented to me and that I felt she had been very adamant about sort of getting me to subscribe to. It was only in those years following her death that I feel like I was able to have a more realistic view of her. Uh, And it's a thing I still challenge myself on. I think that I swung, the pendulum swung too far in the opposite way of, Mm. you know, mom's evil, mom's awful, mom sucks, I can't believe she did this to me, I hate her. Uh, Definitely those types of thoughts. Mm. And then trying to uh, find a more middle ground, a more balanced perspective and finding, trying to find uh, compassion for her has has been a struggle um, right. and yeah. and honestly forgiveness has been a struggle that I am not anywhere near uh, at peace with it's it's one of my bigger one of the bigger things that I'm working on have yeah. you, have you the, read anything by Joanne Cacciatore no she has a book out called um, do, do we have any copies of this podcast Sean um, I'll, I'll send you a copy um she wrote a book called Grieving is Loving or Loving mm. is Grieving, one, one, one yeah. or the other. And anyway. Um, she, uh, she writes about getting past these traumas. Yeah. 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 And how, um, I'm sorry if I cut you off there. Yeah. I mean, she does a really good job of basically talking about how these traumas really 
there's a way to um, embrace them in a sense. Interesting. Uh, but you know, it's funny because I struggle with like my stepfather who was very physically abusive. Yeah. Uh, it's it wasn't until you know the last few years that. Ryan beat him up a few times. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know what's funny is I used to. I, I don't do this anymore, but I used to pick on him. Oh. When I, like just like as you got became an adult. Yeah. Because mm. I knew I could kick his ass. Yeah. yeah. So I used to just I used to like everything he did to me. I was giving back to him. Mm. Like uh. doesn't feel so good now, does it? Mm. Like I don't like. I don't even want to talk about what I used to do. <laughs> but anyway, I um, get the I get it's, it. it's satisfying, but then it's also... It doesn't it, feel good. No, it's satisfying in the way that overeating ice cream is satisfying. Right. Mm-hmm. Like in the moment, I'm like, haha, but then like I leave, I don't like, feel any oh. better. Yeah, I feel sick yeah. afterward, right? right? Right. It's not compassionate. Right. So what I have done with my, like my stepfather, you know, like emotionally, I don't, I don't know. I think... Because we talked about this before in a podcast about me forgiving him, ooh, and I underst- I have an understanding. I have this compassion as to why he was the way he was. So when I think about the things that you know, the, the way he used to beat the crap out of me, I think about like, okay, like what what made him that type of person? And then I started looking at like his parents hmm. and the way that um, they treated him. Uh, and there are some, probably some things I shouldn't even talk about because they're his personal things. But when I look at his upbringing and the way he was treated, mm. it was easy for me, like, especially if I took myself out of the equation where I'm just looking at a human being yeah. who's being raised the way that he's being raised. It's like, oh, wow. Like I was able to form this compassion for like, man, he really had it tough. Mm. And there's no wonder why he was the way he was because of this upbringing that he had. Um, so again, like I think intellectually I can forgive him. Emotionally, it's hard for me to like look at him and be like, hey, I just want to let you know I forgive you. He did apologize to me once. Did he? Very compassionate apology, yeah. Wow, what was that like? It was good. I mean, he it was it was good. He uh, He just called me and he was like, hey, you know, your mother had said something about how you don't like me and how you hate me. And uh, oh, she said it's not helpful. I was going to say, I don't love how this is starting out. And she said, and she said, uh, your, your mother said that, uh, you know, it was because of, you know, me, abu- not abusing you, but, for, you know, the way I treated you growing up is mm-hmm. what he said. Mm-hmm. But, but here's the thing, though, is like, I probably made that comment to my mom. I, you know, just so you know, I hate Doug. Mm-hmm. Sure. Just, just so you know, I, I hate, I hate your, I hate my stepfather. So, you know, uh, yeah, it's not cool that my mom would like, because my, my mom did say it in a very biting way. Mm-hmm. Like, it, there was an argument that they were having, and she was like, well, Ryan doesn't even right. like you. So it wasn't, yeah, it certainly wasn't thing. a positive thing. Right. But it led him to calling me and saying, hey, you know, your mom had said about, you know, basically told me how you feel, and I just want to let you know, like, I'm really sorry if I hurt your feelings that bad. I'm really sorry for the way I treated you. If it made you really feel like you hate me as an adult, like, I just want to let you know, like, I'm sorry and, uh, you know, I hope you can you can forgive me. This is, is eating me because I still feel like there's so much of, like, ref- Ugh, fuck. I, I, it's, I'm so passionate about this and mm-hmm. it's so not my place. But where when people are apologizing and they're somehow, like, refuting accountability for it mm-hmm. by, like, putting it all on your feelings or making it like, well, you know, not that he said this, oh, but like, right. oh, you know. Sorry sp- you feel that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, like that yeah. kind of mm-hmm. thing just... Uh, 
I yeah yeah I do understand what you're because it's not saying hey I'm sorry that I it's not I'm sorry that I made those mistakes I'm sorry that you feel I made mistakes yes right oh my god I did yeah I didn't uh, the way that I took his apology yeah I don't remember the exact language but the the feeling that I had was what he was saying to me was um, I didn't realize how bad I was hurting you mm. and. It was. It did feel good f- to hear him at least make some type of amends. I don't hmm. think I ever. Maybe I did say, "Okay, we'll get." You know, okay, I forgive you. Maybe like in passing, but, but just getting back to the intellectual side of it. Like intellectually, I can have compassion. I could see why it's appropriate for me to forgive him. But emotionally, there still is something there that yes. hard. It's hard for me to let go of. Yes. Yeah. I the, very much relate. Oh, go ahead. No, please. I, I, you know, I, I struggle with the fact that my mom never, I might get emotional. It's just the hardest sort of area for me to mm-hmm. talk about, but that my mom never apologized when she had the chance. Like mm-hmm. I, I feel, and then I'm, you know, trying to think of different scenarios and it's like, well, if she had died suddenly, then she wouldn't have known that she was passing. So she wouldn't have had uh, such a long, uh, t- like amount of time to sort of come to terms with her uh, terminal illness and, try to offer some sort of semblance of an apology to myself or my brothers who are also you know raised by the same person with with the same behaviors um and the fact that she'd never apologized feels incredibly cowardly to me and i think she failed as a parent i think i think Mm. that there are certain things that you that as a parent it it just seems like you know, absolutely fundamental to to being a parent, and the fact that she was unable to apologize to any of us just so gets to me. Yeah, yeah. no, that's completely understandable, and it goes back to that feeling of you know a child looking at their parent and saying, "This is what a parent should be." Mm-hmm. How do, how do you not see this is the way a parent should be? Right. The only thing um, I th- I just want to say to what you just laid out was. If your mom apologized to you and your brothers, yeah. that's her admitting that she was wrong. Right. So to me, it's not a matter of like, um, I don't know, like that she doesn't love and care for, you know, obviously she cares for her kids, but it's... Why some, do you say that, obviously? Well, I mean, I think that if she didn't care, it would have been like I... I uh, when, because there have been times when my mom just hasn't cared and mm-hmm. she just removes herself from my life there yeah. is no there is no trying to do anything for me it's just she just like hands off of Bye. me as much as possible that's yeah. a good point hmm. so the fact that you know she was so involved with your life i mean i do i mean and this is just my two cents but Shouldn't like I, I i sense like you know there is some love there but again her saying sorry that makes her have to look at herself right and some people can't face themselves. She couldn't do it. Yeah. It's also, you know, there's in, you know, many, my, my father and grandfather would often say, you know, you need help. You need to get some of this under control. She was also very you know, physically abusive toward my father and everything. And, and she was told repeatedly from people who cared about her, you know, you, for the greater good of this family, you need to do something about what's going on. And she just never would. And kind of in describing her behaviors between my brothers and I to different therapists uh, a lot of them have seemed to think that she might have had narcissistic personality disorder which Mm. I guess a part of that disorder is and you know she wouldn't see somebody so that's kind of a part of what makes 
people think that they that somebody has that is because they're, they're they refuse to see sort of any yes. flaw. Um, and apparently, one of the things is I think you're incapable of empathy, or or I believe it's in, it's empathy. Maybe it's compassion, but uh, but that's also rattling to me because it just doesn't make sense how somebody can be like supposedly narcissistic personality disorder means you sort of put assign different roles to your kids and sometimes you see you know you have one kid that you see yourself in and, you, and that's the trophy child and then you have one kid that sort of is the the left to their own devices like kind of shunned one and that mm. was my brother who she always would say like you're my least favorite child in front of all of us mm. too and Damn. yeah and seeing yeah. that's traumatizing not just to him but also to you oh my god all because of us. it creates separation yes yeah so we thought oh he's the one that's kind of the outcast and i i mean it's definitely had long-term negative effects mm. on him wow you know, well, that's yeah. his battle. You, you said that her inability to apologize was cowardly, and I, I agree with that. You you also said that she failed as a result, and yeah, she failed. Uh, your mom failed you as a parent, but I'm a parent. I will tell you that I fail all the time mm. as a parent, mm. and I think ostensibly people would look and say, "Oh, well, you're uh, especially relative to Ryan's and my parents. I'm a trophy parent, yeah. right?" Yeah. Yeah. But uh, you know, and I know. Bex, who uh, my wife, she she grew up in a rather idyllic house, like on a farm in Minnesota with two parents, mm-hmm. stay-at-home mom. But even they have traumas within that family. Yeah. Within you know, it was like a made-for-TV sort of family. She has three siblings and her on a farm, and and the attorney dad and the art- artistic mom, <laughs> and like it it seems perfect. But even within that, there is failure. There there always is and the problem is we associate that failure as though it's a bad thing now mm-hmm. let me let me just expand on this ryan talked about the hate that he had for his stepfather mm-hmm. and i assume there's been some level of hate for your mother Certainly. as well and and i'll just say that that hate is always birthed out of a lack of understanding mm-hmm. we think of hate as the opposite of love it's not at all um hate is the is the opposite of understanding mm-hmm. uh, because here's the thing it, let's say that you know, Ryan was physically abused by his stepfather, right? Mm-hmm. And and like physically hurt. Mm-hmm. And now, if the same thing were to happen, you know, so you were bruised up, let's say once. Mm-hmm. But if the same thing happened because a tornado hit you, mm-hmm. hit your house, and 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 all of a sudden you know, some shrapnel hit you and it bruised you in the same exact way, you wouldn't hate the tornado. Right. You, mm. you, you would simply recognize how unfortunate it was and you'd be discontented by the circumstance. Mm. And I would like to posit to both of you and also to myself because, you know, my, my mom had similar demons as well, yeah. that it could not have gone any different. Hmm. Now, that's hard for us to grasp because we feel as though, oh, she should have, my mom just should have made these different mm-hmm. choices. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, but she couldn't have made any difference. If you, it, anyone given the exact same circumstances that she grew up in mm-hmm. and, and all of the scenarios in which she was thrust, they would act exactly the same as she did. You know, if they had her same neurobiological makeup, it was impossible for her to act any differently, mm-hmm. right? We, we think of this concept of free will, which when you really look at the science behind it becomes nonsensical really, really quickly. And you realize that whether it's a tornado that abuses you mm-hmm. or a person who abuses you, mm-hmm. it couldn't have happened any differently. Right. And, and so forgiveness in a way isn't about it, it isn't about not hating that person or whatever. It's about understanding that, oh, that happened. It, the tornado could not have happened differently. Mm-hmm. I don't hate the tornado. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I'm not forgiving the tornado 
in in that way, I'm simply accepting the fact. Mm. That is when I think of forgiveness. I'm simply, and I'm not saying you have to forgive anyone for anything. Right. Don't forgive the person. It's not about them anyway. Mm. We forgive only so we can move on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how do we move on? It's accepting it, not in a prescriptive way, not in a you must accept the way things were. No, I just understand mm. that my mom did the best she could do. It sounds even hard to say this, given the resources she had. And it doesn't feel like she did the best she could, but she couldn't have possibly done anything different. Mm. I was gonna ask you if you have found forgiveness slash your thoughts on forgiveness toward your um, mother. Yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, it's, so so I I, I have found an acceptance and through that acceptance, I have actually found a deep appreciation for her. Hmm. Nostalgia works two ways. So when we look in the past, nostalgia is usually like this rose-colored rear view. We talked about this on a recent episode. We did a whole nostalgia uh, maximal episode. Um, and what, what we were talking about is when we look at the nostalgia of something, it's looking at a, a 3D world through 2D glasses in a way. And so we're seeing only the good things. You're remembering the good times. It, it often happens with like romantic relationships yep. when you miss a lover because you only remember the good stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and somehow we've able, been able to tweeze out all the crap out of the crap stew that, we, that was, was the relationship and like, oh, it was delicious. No, 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 it tasted like crap. That's why we left. That's why we walked away, whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and the other side of that though, is sometimes we remember only the bad things, the traumatic things, sure. because the trauma was so great, the pain was so great that we then discount all the other things that were truly joyous yep. and, and wonderful. Mm-hmm. And so there were so many things about your mom. There was a 3D situation with your mom here. And part of that was traumatic. And part of it was joyous. The joy also makes room for the trauma. When we try to tweeze out one from the other, then we don't have the complete picture. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I'm i thinking about what you said about the opposite of hate is understanding but it's interesting because I think when you truly love something or love someone, you go out of your way to understand. Yes. You go out of your way to accept them. Yes. Because I understand why my stepdad is the way he is. I accept the way he is. I even have compassion for the way he is. But yeah, there is, well, I don't hate him though. There's, there's no more hate there, but there is like a lack of forgiveness that I certainly mm. still struggle with. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, uh, but that yeah. means there isn't a total acceptance yet. And that's not, I'm not saying you should accept him. Um, but for, for an acceptance for the way, yeah. That it way. couldn't have been any different. Right. I, if, if you understand that it truly could not have been any different. But it's interesting intellectually feeling that and, and then emotionally connecting with that. Yeah. So yes. when, I, when I talk about yes. understanding, I'm always talking about the feeling. I'm never talking about the intellectual mm. understanding. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I definitely struggle with getting the intellectualizing and the emotional on the same page, but right. I guess that's the whole, that's life. Yeah. Com- comprehend- <laughs> exactly. Comprehending isn't the same thing as understanding. Right, right. Understanding is that visceral, mm. that, ah, uh, I don't even need the language around it. It's mm. understanding the essence of this. You know, mm. you know what's funny is like, I, uh, I can look in the mirror and I really like the man that I see in front of the mirror. I'm like, wow, like how far you've come, man. Mm. And I really like who I am as a person. And I have learned to appreciate all of the crap that has happened in my life because if it wasn't for every single instance that happened, okay, if it wasn't for every single instance, uh, you know, that happened during my life, my childhood, all the abuse, then I would not be 
the man that I am today. So I have learned how to accept and appreciate my upbringing. But it's funny though, because it's as a whole, if I look at that stepdad part of it, there still is just something there where it's like, yeah, it's hard for me to, to let go of. And yeah, yeah, of course. Tell me if you relate to this. I, f- I felt like when I, 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 well, I relate to your, to your point of like looking in the mirror and be like, well, you know, I'm, I appreciate these, that these things have happened to me because it's, um, the fabric of life and it's led me to the lessons that I've learned and I wouldn't be the same person uh, without those lessons and I probably prefer this person to the person who hadn't uh, learned those lessons. Yeah. Uh, and then I think, well, is that me rationalizing it? Like maybe I would be mm. actually 10 times better <laughs> if I hadn't lived those, th- if I didn't have to do the, du- you know, double of the work to overcome the trauma, to fight the eating disorder. Maybe I'd be some like, you know, maybe I'd have found the cure for cancer. Maybe yeah. I'd, <laughs> do you ever have that? Or I no? do. I, no, I do have that. Like I used to think, um, I used to tell myself like, oh, if my mom and dad didn't get divorced, it would have been a completely different yeah. upbringing and I would be a completely different person and maybe it would be for the better. I mean, you know, I think we can always get stuck in the if yeah. and ands and all that and all those things. And, you know, let's say you would have cured cancer if your mom wasn't the way she was. <laughs> I mean, what are you going to do with that information? Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's like you can't, you still can't change it. So, I, well, it's interesting, <laughs> you know, um, what I've been learning like in the last five or 10 years is really getting comfortable with the unknown getting getting Ooh, com- tell me how. getting comfortable <laughs> with um well I'll, I'll tell you a couple ways that yeah, i've been please. able to do it so with there's a joy in trying to figure something out right like we have a problem or we have a puzzle and like to try and figure it out is it's kind of the that's where the joy comes from with like a jigsaw puzzle mm-hmm. so when you finish a jigsaw puzzle you have it complete and all the pieces are in there and it's like this sense of accomplishment, but that sense of accomplishment is, it wanes so quickly. Mm -hmm. Like as soon as you have it figured out, you're like, okay, now let's go move on to the next puzzle. Yeah. So for me, like when it, like spirituality is a great example. For me, it's more, I've learned to, to have more uh, joy with the unknown and being open to different things Mm -hmm. rather than assigning clear definite um here's what god looks like here's his angels and then there's the opposite of that there's hell and like it's more joyful to me and to be like i don't know to almost like kind of play pretend with what might be Mm -hmm, i guess mm -hmm. so i have found i've and it's been a practice of learning how to find the joy in, in in trying to figure it out I, yeah, I don't know how, how else to say it. So what I'm talking to Jeanette about, Josh, is finding the joy in, like, not having answers. Mm. Like, there's something with that I've been able to do over the last five or ten years and, like, actually not just being okay with not having yeah. answers. Like, that's step number one is accepting that, like, there aren't. That's where I'm at. Right. <laughs> it's like there aren't any answers. And once I accepted, like, oh, like, there are no real answers. Right. Now it's like, you know, I kind of look at life as this, um, it's not a game as in like win or lose, but it's a, it's in the game of a sense. What I was explaining or the, the symbol I used was like a jigsaw puzzle. It's like, you know, I don't know what the picture is going to look like, but it's fun putting these pieces in. Right. But like, I actually don't look forward to the day when I have it figured out. Mm. Cause then that just, for me, like that just takes away from what life is like, 
Yeah. yeah. yeah the, the, the figuring out is interesting, right? Because you, there's a great book. Uh, it's a novel called The Answers by Catherine Lacey. It came out, I think, in 2017. Phenomenal novel. Probably the best novel of the last decade. And um, she... She in the, really it's an exploration and what you realize it unravels pretty quickly like there aren't the answers that we and when I say the solution is the problem really you're saying the same thing when you say there aren't right. any answers the solutions that we're looking for are often things that we are looking to to simpor- temporarily numb our our so-called problems yeah. they don't actually eradicate the problems mm-hmm. and and so in fact, most of the problems that we have, we've manufactured. They're all externalities. Right. And then it's really quixotic to try to think that, like, the the answer to my externally created problems are other externalities. It's like the the productivity systems that we look at. It's like, well, you know, the, the reason I'm not very productive is I don't have the right app or the right calendar or the right you know, method. Well, no, no, no. It, the problem is the methodologies in the first place. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the problem is the seeking of of those answers yeah much of the time well you know like i think about uh this experience of being a human being and before i was what is it like (laughs) before i was born let's say that you know i'm floating in the ether some kind of ethereal thing and i'm like man i really want to experience being a human being and so then i'm born here i am i'm experiencing it and then you know when i die i can look back and be like oh wow that was a crazy experience but the idea of you know the good and the bad happening like it's part of the human experience i mean what if not even what if i mean you could argue that this is the only thing we have all we have is this this body and the choices that we make and the experiences that we have um man it's funny because into like me thinking this thought it helps me find joy and the good and the bad with being a human being, but I yeah. understand like what I'm saying is just well, when you say good and bad, you what you really mean is like pain pleasure, and pain. pleasure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's like there's, you know, I, I had this experience um, about two months ago where I was on this camping trip, and I'm like sitting on this rock uh, as the sun is coming up, and I started. I was talking with uh, one of the guys I was on the trip with. I was talking to him about uh, the relationship I have with my my mom and dad and how or the lack thereof. And I really started to get very sad about um, not having the relationship I wish I had with my parents. And like tears started to like come to my eyes. But then at the same time, there was this moment of joy where I was like, God, I love being able to experience these emotions. Hmm. Like what a privilege it is to be able to experience a sadness, Hmm. to know what sadness feels like. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm not trying to sound like trite or just be like, well, be okay with the sadness. But like there, there was a, a deep understanding. Yeah. There was a deep understanding of like, man, I'm, I really am sad right now, but God, if this is the only emotion that I experience, like how lucky I am to be able to experience this emotion. Well, you know where that understanding comes from here is this was one of those moments where you didn't need the pleasure. And, right. and because when we need the pleasure, the, the book contract or whatever, right. When we need that, always always comes with disproportionate amounts of misery it's a sliver of the pleasure for all for a trash heap of misery mm. and and in that moment what you recognized is like these both of these things happen mm-hmm. the pleasure happens the sadness happens yeah 
I don't need one over the other. They will occur. I'm not a sad person. Sadness is arising within me. Right. And as soon as you saw that, just like with Jeanette and the, the jealousy arising within yeah. you, mm. you're not a jealous person. Maybe you were a jealous person and that's how you saw yourself. That was part of your identity. Mm. And all of a sudden, no, 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 no. Jealousy might still arise. That's not who I am as an individual. And the same with the sadness. That's that understanding. It I wasn't was no happy. Longer yeah, I wasn't happy that I was sad. No, no, but you were appreciative. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and that's the thing. We, we, can, we can experience pleasure. We can, ex we can experience pain. Pain is not bad. If it was, no one would ever go to the gym because it's painful, you know, especially if you work out really hard. In fact, if you think about last time you went to the gym, which it's I... It's been a while. Well, <laughs> yeah, we, we had had a pandemic, right? But, and then when you wake up the next day and you're like really, really sore all over, you know why. But if you wake up with that pain and you hadn't gone to the gym, you would call your doctor and say, what is wrong with me? Mm. Right. And so sometimes we experience pain. And what we're really asking ourselves is, what is wrong with me? Yeah. And and well, the answer is nothing other than there's this the society that has told you mm. that you are incomplete. You know, I just realized like the reason why. I was able to get to that joyous state is because when I was feeling that deep sorrow for the relationship that I don't have with my parents, I was able to step back and like ask myself like, man, if I was told being a human being was going to be experiencing this feeling, would I want to do it? Mm. And it was like an instant like, yeah, hmm. absolutely I would. If this is the only feeling I ever felt, like I would want to experience something like that. But you know, going back to like, understanding or not understanding but appreciating the not understanding or appreciating not having the answers yeah. i think just to because i'm i actually like makes inspires me to like you know jot some stuff down about this yeah um but it's accepting once you know once you can even intellectually accept like okay there are there are no right or wrong answers there are just answers mm. and even even those answers aren't a hundred percent true it's just what may or may not work but ultimately there are no 100 percent correct answers once you can intellectually understand that every time you get the feeling of confusion or or not understanding something g trying to embrace it hmm. like now that you know intellectually like oh there is there really aren't any answers that they're going to be 100 percent correct so now for me at least like I once I accepted that emotionally I could start to play with that feeling of not knowing if that makes any sense no it totally does uh, the area where I feel like I've definitely done that is with the Mormon faith you know having grown up Mormon and being so taught these certain principles and you know the some of the values which I still definitely appreciate and live yeah. by some of them but but the uh, doctrine itself was something that I was like, yeah, that that doesn't seem like the answer to mm -hmm. me. Like that's not that's not it, and I don't think anyone can possibly know that. Um, but that that was something that I once I came to terms with felt very it felt very freeing. I felt yeah. um, like my world was so much wider, and I think I fear letting go of the religion to me seemed scary because I felt like well, letting go of the control. Uh, is going to be terrifying and I'm just like free falling and what does that mean and what what do, what do I do and will I just go off the rails because I won't have this structure and this rigidity to kind of live by and guide me um, and what if I'm a terrible person without the Mormon faith mm. and letting it go I mean was 
one of the best things for my life. I felt more accepting. I felt able to have relationships with people that I would have just brushed off as being like not Mormon, so I can't talk to them beforehand. Um, I definitely felt an increase in empathy that I think I had closed myself off to because I thought that certain, you know, of the rules were correct when I think they were closing me off to empathy and, and understanding. Mm. You know, it's it's interesting, like just to so th- I started, I absolutely started when I let go of the, uh, the doctrine of Jehovah's Witnesses. I was wondering, I was wondering. Yeah. So I, I feel very, um, very similar, uh, what you're saying. I mean, yeah, I, I feel like I've, that's where I started with my kind of letting go of not having the answers. But one thing that I tell myself, or I guess it helps me find joy in not knowing the answers is that ultimately for some people, Mormonism is the right answer. Totally. And for some people, totally. Jehovah's Witnesses is the right answer. Totally. And for some people, atheism is the right answer. So it's really, and this is the state of play that I can get in where it's like, oh, whatever whatever I think is the answer, as long as I act on that answer, it is the answer. Yeah, it, yeah. It's, all, it's all form versus essence. So these are different forms or what we might call different paths to get us somewhere. And for you, Mormonism was a path that was not taking you to the essence of, of where it took other people. And so for you, in, in the way, it was the quote-unquote wrong path. And, and, and Jehovah's Witness, the same thing with you, Ryan. It, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't mean that it is a, the wrong path for everyone. Right. It, it is merely a path. Yeah, it's, yeah exactly. It's mm-hmm. like, what do you want? Like, I had to ask myself, like, what do I want out of life? You know, and going back to those foundational values, but, you know, something that we didn't write about in the foundational values, I don't know where this would fall in the whole, you know, uh, uh, values hierarchy, but connectedness is something that I very much crave. I I really want to um, be as inclusive as possible. So when I looked at that, I was like, oh, this is why, this is one of the reasons why being one of Jehovah's Witnesses isn't the right answer for me because it is a very exclusive thing. Mm-hmm. It, you, it, it, and it gave you this sense of disconnection. Right. Yeah, I, I would call that a structural value, which is really, really important to you, yeah. that sense of connectedness. Mm-hmm. Now, you can get connectedness. Now, the, the irony of that is a lot of people join a religion to become connected with a community. Right. And, and there's a difference between a, a tribe and a community. Tribes unite against something. So Jehovah's Witnesses for you were, were they were sort of uniting against the other, the worldly people. Mm-hmm. Or, in fact, I remember your dad referred to me and my brother as worldly people, right? Right. And, and he somewhat meant it pejoratively, but not he was, it wasn't insulting. It was no. just like, you guys are other. Right. And you had others as well that's, with the Mormon yep, face, that's right? That's totally my experience. Now, community, like we have a, a good friend, Erwin uh, McManus, who is in our last film. He's also in this book, A Love People Use Things. And he has a church in Hollywood, and they're very inclusive. Right? I think he said that you know, 20% of the church are atheists. Mm-hmm. So when you think about that, like, in fact, he start, the first year when he started the church 25, 30 years ago, he didn't allow Christians to come for the first year. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Christian church that didn't allow, because I didn't yeah. want Christians to ruin the, I, I didn't want religion to ruin my faith. Yeah. Wow. And it was well. like, oh, wow. So like mm. that was a community. Now, he wasn't really excluding Christians. What he was saying is don't bring a don't bring your dogma into here. You can everyone is welcome, but this isn't for everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyone can show up, but it's not for everyone. We're going to create a culture because when we create a culture, it's it's about 
it, it is about what are we excluding now yeah. for him it wasn't excluding people it was excluding dogma mm-hmm. and, and because he wanted to unite people around certain i won't call them principles but through connection yeah and they still do that now you know it's a it's a, a very connected community that they have mm-hmm. yeah I, when you all were talking when i came back into the room here um uh, it was reminding me of this this bit in love people use things there's this little section called heartbreak hallways and and, and i dealt with depression for the first time in my life in 20 starting in 2018 and uh through some health stuff that really screwed me up. Mm. And uh, I wrote about it here. The end of it just says this. Um, we were talking about the sort of depression and going through the bad days and the good days, etc. The Experiencing the sadness, right? Mm-hmm. This is all part of it. Every adventure is pleasurable. Every adventure is painful. That's what makes it an adventure. The pain makes us more alive. If you avoid pain, you avoid life. Mm-hmm. But through the pain, you learn more about yourself than you ever thought possible. A trip to the grocery usually isn't an adventure. It's an unmemorable event. That's, uh, with reckless abandon, we stumble upon a series, we stumble through a series of near life experiences, stacking unremarkable events day after day and pretend that's living. But it's not, it's a to-do list, a sequence of tasks, a productivity hack, living involves peak experiences and complexities and unnameable emotions that interweave our existence. It requires experiencing the present moment as we walk through life. Joy and pain, highs and lows. These are the hallways that get us from here to there. It's heartwarming. It's heartbreaking. Mm. A meaningful journey is never without pain, nor is it without joy. It It is mixed with both. And sometimes you don't get to decide which experience is around the corner. When I think about the pain, I think too often we, we want to cover it up, not realizing that, as Ryan so acutely pointed out, that's actually part of the experience. And we can numb the pain. Mm. You've done it with opioids. Yeah. I've done it with OCD. Right. You know, we can numb the pain, but it actually takes out the living part of it right we're constructing a life instead of living Mm. a constructed life is not living at all yeah it's not an experience it's it's sort of like materialistic in a way yeah something that that uh resonated with me about that that i can kind of also relate back to my my therapy experience was learning that difficult emotions uh can actually be really useful in like pointing you toward what your values are that changed my relationship with them entirely because then I was almost like, well, when am I next going to feel jealous so I know what matters to me? <laughs> or like, well, when am I going to feel anger so I can figure out that it's re- that's a really important, you know, the opposite of that's really important to me or, or whatever it might have mm-hmm. been. But um, seeing those difficult emotions as more of an opportunity to, to find, you know, a deeper sense of direction was really helpful for me. Not that it's been easy at all. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I would think, well, I, I'm eager for my next experience of jealousy. Then it would hit me. And I'd be like, never mind. Let's get rid of it. Um, I take that back. <laughs> I don't want it, please. Um, but it, it definitely did help me to not, to not be so judgmental of them and so trying desperately to avoid them at all costs, whatever, yeah. you know, between eating disorders and my alcohol issues, those were, those were the big ones for me. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah, that's awesome. What I hear you say is, what I'm hearing you say is, instead of looking at those emotions as a condition, you're able to recognize them as a symptom. Yes. And once yes. you can 
Totally. Yeah, like once you can understand, like, oh, these are, this isn't who I am. Like you said, jealousy arises in me. Why is it arising in me right now? Yeah. Rather than being like, oh, I'm a jealous person. And there's, those, those are, I'm a jealous person is a very disempowering statement. Jealousy is arising in me is a very empowering statement. Absolutely. And then and running from them or trying to avoid them is kind of like cr- making them into, uh, for me, it was ma- making them into my enemies. And then, I mean, I can't finish a sentence and say that my emotions are my friends because that's just very uh, too corny. But I feel <laughs> like I feel like I did get to the place where I could at least live with them and not need oh. to be running from them. And they could be acquaintances. I love that. Mm. My emotions are my friends. I actually Please, really no. like that. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, I'm not going to, this is the, the the maximal episode. So, you know, it's only thousands of people listening to it <laughs> rather than millions of people listening to it. <laughs> but no, uh, no, I, I know it's funny because I have those things too where something sounds corny, but that's very enlightening. My emotions are my <laughs> my friends. I, I've never heard anyone say that before. So I know it's, I know what you're saying. It sounds corny, but that's actually, I'm going to use that. I feel like you're trying to make me feel better. Myself. <laughs> no. I appreciate it even if that's the No, case. if anything, I'm making me feel better. Okay. <laughs> Uh, let's wrap up with Holly's question here. Okay. I often feel empty as a result of few social connections or relationships that feel one-sided where I'm constantly the one to make contact or suggest a get-together. The fact that others fail to reach back feels personal, even though I know that most people are drowning in stuff, be it physical possessions, too many commitments, packed schedules, etc. I would like to hear some suggestions for how to form new connections at a time when it's easy to fill the void with the same meaningless things that drive a wedge into existing connections in the first place. How do we grow new connections in a digital age? Let's let's talk about this. I, the I understand the compulsion to want to form these new connections, especially when these other ones, they feel, as she says, one-sided, right? or just having fewer social connections, especially at a time like this. Uh, Whether it is the digital age or during a pandemic, we're not as connected to people. I think one of the problems that, one of the traps that we we run into is we we think that we're supposed to form particular connections. Well, what does that suggest? The implication of which is I'm incomplete without those connections. Now, Ryan, you talked earlier about, about the connection being a value for you mm. as long as long as it's not at the detriment of yourself and who right. you are then the connections they augment your life they enhance your experience of life mm. but if you turn to those externalities to complete you if you show up empty you will never be filled by someone else yeah it's absolutely true yeah it's funny because yeah i don't I don't rely on connections to be like a content person. Hmm. It's like the reason why I seek connections is because I want people to experience the joy that I experience. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm constantly asking, that's why we do the minimalists. I mean, that's why we do things like this It's because we really hope that we can help people experience joy in their lives uh, without chasing a bunch of ephemeral pleasures. Um, but yeah, you're because it, it there is a balance there, right? Where if I'm relying on connections to be complete, uh, I will never actually feel complete, right? But it, rather, you have to like feel complete yourself. You have to be. I mean, I'm an extrovert, so I can't really just sit in an empty room and, and feel complete for the rest of my days. But certainly, hmm. you know, if I'm there for an hour or two, I could totally <laughs> feel feel complete. Yeah. Um, but it's not until that completeness 
it's not until that happens when those connections truly enhance my life. Yeah, I think we all could benefit from an actual social distancing, mm. not the six feet stuff, not not the the sort of yearning for the the connection that that creates, but a stepping back and understanding like, oh, I'm complete in an empty room without surrounding myself by things or people, right? Mm-hmm. I, I hope that the message of love people use things isn't, well, it's the people that will f- make your life fulfilling, not the things. No, 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 no. It, people uh, will certainly amplify your contentment mm. or they will amplify your misery. Mm-hmm. And I think Ooh. quite often it's the latter. <laughs> yeah. Right? We yeah. surround ourselves with people because we feel incomplete. They just, they, they widen the void that we've been talking about. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm not a, I, you know, I have two friends, Zane and Drew, that I keep in touch with every probably couple weeks we'll have a phone chat. But otherwise, I'm definitely, I don't know, I don't, I, I have more of that, I guess, solitude kind of instinct yeah. than, than the other. And actually, I, I sort of, I would like to expand my social circle a little bit and, and, uh, but so, yeah, I just, I, I. That's yeah. where I'm at. Yeah. Well, have, <laughs> have you taken a Myers-Briggs test? Uh, yes. I got, or is that the one where it's like blank, like four letters? Yeah. yeah. I got INTP. Yeah. Okay. I can see that. I so can see that. I was going to say INFP. What are you? I'm an e- ENFP. It's feeler versus judge, right? Or something, or like, feel, uh, I don't know. The yeah. The last one, yeah, is like judgment versus uh, instinct, right? Yeah. We'll just walk through it real quick. So the yeah. I, I versus E. So Ryan and I are literally exact opposites. He, he's an ENFP. I'm an ISTJ. And, and, um, and so you will feel that yours were accurate? To yourself, I feel without like, a doubt. Yeah, you know it's funny. Without a I've doubt, I've taken the Enneagram and I've taken a lot of different. And you know, I guess it just goes down to like you know, uh, it being highly individual. But the Myers Briggs for me, I feel like is the most accurate than any other personality test that I've taken. And, and, and here's why: it it uh, it gives me a mirror, so I can better see myself in a way that I can better interact with others. Mm. So uh, the I N or I S T J for me is so introvert versus Ryan's an extrovert. Right. Right. So it's the E. Yeah. Yep. So the I and mm-hmm. the E. And, and then the in, which is Ryan, is a big picture is a way to think about it. Mm-hmm. Intu- intuitive, big picture versus S, sensing, which means detail oriented. So mm-hmm. I'm real de- detail oriented. Ryan's a big picture sort of person, right? Mm-hmm. You, you're the I-N. Yeah. So you're more big picture than you are detail oriented. Well, I'm quite a list maker, which seems like it would be more yeah. detail. And I like planning. So. Uh, yeah. Well, plan that, we're going to get to planning here <laughs> oh, in a moment. Oh, fun. Um, and so uh, your, your, your um, initialism may not be completely accurate for you. So the, the next one is thinking versus feeling. I'm uh, way on the thinking side. Ryan's way on the feeling side. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So I don't know where you, My you might fall somewhere thinking, in the middle. I, c- I consider thinking to, thinking feels more uh, like my nature. Feeling feels like a thing that I have to live with. Uh, mm-hmm. Like yes. I feel like I'm a big feeler and it's like, why did this have to happen to me? I feel like anytime I see another big feeler, I, I struggle to relate to them because I feel like there's not the thinking, it, you know, th- yeah. that instinct isn't quite the same. But what do you act on most of it, your thinking or feelings? Uh, I would say I intellectualize my way out of my feelings. Yeah, okay. yep. that's the yeah. thinker for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I can see y- you seem like a thinker to me. Yeah. It's not to say that one is devoid of feelings. Right. It's just what is the the default. And by the way, it's a spectrum, right? So it's a hundred T or versus a hundred F, and then everyone else is sort of 
in the middle. Yeah. Like for detail oriented versus big picture, like I am like five to ten percent detail oriented. So sometimes I've taken the test and mm. I've been I've been a big picture. So um, yeah, it could be where you are in life. All the others, I'm pretty dramatically to one side or the other. Yeah. The final one is um, so. Uh, I N or ISTJ versus ENFP. Yeah. So your P versus a J. J is judging. That means I'm a planner. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, uh, I like to plan things. The uh, Ryan is spontaneous. Mm. So the P for him is perceiving. Mm. It means he's he's very spontaneous in the moment. Hmm. And, and so you are a P, but uh, at least tested for a P. Uh, maybe you are very spontaneous. You strike me as more of a planner. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. I feel I f that's another sort of of the areas where when I find somebody who's a planner, I'm like, whoa, crazy! Like they're very into planning. Um, I have I had an old uh, former castmate who was who was very into like knowing everybody's schedule and who was doing what press at any different time. And mm. I th just thought that was like I didn't relate to that at all. Wow. But I like to have some structure, and you know, it makes me feel like I've got a sense of direction. So maybe yeah. I'm more that one sounds like she's just more balanced than us right exactly <laughs> exactly and that's really what the you know the, the 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 test just really kind of identifies which way you lean yes doesn't right. mean that you're not well, a, it doesn't mean i'm not a j it's just that i lean more towards the perceptive side mm -hmm. well it helps you better understand your nature too and so like right. Right, here's here's mm -hmm. the best example i have for it i am an extreme introvert mm -hmm. like i don't know anyone more introverted than me um, I spend 80 to 90% of my time alone and, and yet I spent most of my twenties pretending to be an extrovert because I thought that's what you're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. I find, and it made me miserable. I find that the people who like you, Josh, who are an introvert, they do the best at being perceived as an extrovert. Mm. If that well, makes any sense. Because I'm socially competent. Yeah. And so, um, in fact, I know some extroverts who are socially incompetent. Yes. You have an uncle who's that way. Yeah, um, pretty much. It's <laughs> <laughs> really funny. Yeah. yeah. And so we often mistake one for the other. Like some, mm. Just because someone can interact with someone does not mean they're extroverted. Right. Mm. That's just a, 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 a skill sort of thing that you yeah. develop over time. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, so really understanding your introversion just means like, hey, this is how I recharge by having time alone. It doesn't mean I shouldn't be around other people. Mm -hmm. No, no, no. You probably enjoy being around other people. But if you're steeped in company all the time, it's going to drain you and you're not going to be the best version of yourself when well, you're around everyone. I think that aspect of the, the Myers-Briggs definitely helped me with my friendships because my two closest friends, Zane and Drew, are both in intense extroverts. Mm -hmm. okay. And I think sometimes if I wasn't giving the same it maybe w was perceived on there and like a lack of uh, a lack of interest or a lack of mutual kind of level of of engagement in the friendship but it was really it's really just I think that instinct of like no I need to kind mm -hmm. of like recharge and then I'll call back when I can or I'll be more you know yeah upbeat maybe next time we hang out but I want to just be myself and don't want to I would try and oftentimes like force a more bubbly version of myself out for the sake of I didn't want to offend somebody or make them think that I was bored or anything like that and I think it, it it was quite inauthentic uh, to me. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. Um, I never, and it's taken me, it's, you know, I don't know when this happened because I'm sure at some point I was offended. But, like, now if Josh doesn't reach out to me for a couple weeks, like, I don't get offended. Yeah. Like, I totally understand, like, oh, he's an introvert. Um, right. There's been times where uh, he just sends me a message and he's like, hey, I'm going to be gone for a week. Please don't contact me. <laughs> I'm like okay like that's what he needs I'm gonna support him on that 
Right, and because because <laughs> the opposite would be what? It would be asking me to go against my nature, right? right? Mm-hmm. And the thing is, I was asking myself to go against my nature for the longest time because society said you need to be one particular way. And I think this all goes back to Holly's question here, is that we, you know, we could argue whether, you know, I think ever since the advent of society, we have been societal people. And in fact, there's a good argument that introversion did not exist in uh, early civilization mm. because we you we, died. we need it. well or <laughs> yeah. or or you might say I've been acculturated to become an introvert yeah. or I think the more compelling hypothesis is that most people were introverts pre civilization mm. and mm. and they they had connections but they were also fine with being alone for long stretches of time out of necessity yeah and and. And that then we started to form societies and civilizations, and in that we were always around other people, and we evolved to become more sort of extroverted. Yeah. Regardless of how we got here, some people are introverts, some people are extroverts. If we don't honor that, we're simply setting ourselves up for discontent. Hmm. Josh, I want you to answer this question honestly. Do you work for the CIA? <laughs> <laughs> Is that why you leave sometimes for a week and I don't hear from you? <laughs> <laughs> this whole thing is just a front. I knew it. <laughs> the minimalist. I is knew it. <laughs> Damn, you're good. <laughs> <laughs> Jeanette, where, where should we send folks? We'll encourage them to listen to your podcast, Empty Inside. Where else should we send them? Anywhere? Uh, my website is my name, J E N N E T T E M C C U R D Y dot com, and that has links to all the socials. So I think that's probably easiest. And listing out all of cool. them. Wow, cool. it's been awesome having you. It's been so fun. I, I take away so much from our conversations, and they really help me to uh, grow and think more. So thank you. Awesome. I want to acknowledge you for just being willing to have conversations like this. Not everyone is. Uh, you've been super vulnerable uh, both times that we've we've talked on on the record, and then other times that we've talked uh, sort of uh, via email or text or wherever. Like it, what what I like about our conversations is. I'm always open to learning something new. Nothing is fixed for me either. And I find that having these types of conversations, we all walk away with something, whether it's someone who's listening to this or me and you. You know, I would have never even written the success essay, essay if we wouldn't have had that initial conversation cool. about success not existing. So I'm really grateful for, for what you bring to the table here. Thank you so yeah. much. Thank you. All right, y'all. Love people, use things. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much, patrons. The Minimalists. Mm-hmm. <laughs>